and welcome back to Kino Inferno, your new favourite film podcast. I was going to do a Pee Wee Herman impression, but I, I can't do it. I can't get it out. It's in my head and I can't. Uh, I mean, it. I'm disgusted that you try haven't. it. You try it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how. How do you do it? Like, I, I could, I could hear it in my head, but I can't. I don't really know. <laughs> no, I can't even do it. I can't even do it. Now just imagine you're violently masturbating in a packed movie theater. Anyway, um, <laughs> not even one minute in. Look, you knew it. You knew it as soon as you saw the title. You knew we'd be doing that kind of material. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yes, this is Kino Inferno, your favorite movie podcast. I am Aiden, and I am Mark. And today we are gathered uh, to mourn the passing of. The one and only Paul Rubens, who died about a week ago as of this recording. It's uh, been a week already. From a battle with cancer. Yeah, quite a long battle um, from the sounds of things. Sort of five, six years, he sort of kept it to himself. Yeah, just like many other things that he probably should have kept to himself. Um, two for two. <laughs> 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 yeah. That feels like it's mildly disrespectful. <laughs> mildly. Okay, so yes, if you don't know who Paul Rubens is, how do we even describe, how do we even begin? That's a very good point, actually. Um, Paul Rubens was a truly interesting character actor, notable throughout. A controversial figure, let's say he, we'll, we'll, and we'll get into this, we'll get into this, not a figure devoid of controversy. No, not at all. However, a figure that was quite the shining star of sort of 80s and 90s American comedy and American cinema yes. crops up in all kinds of places but most notable for playing and creating the character of Pee Wee Herman who we were discussing this off mic yeah. explain Pee Wee Herman <laughs> to the folks at home. Um, I describe Pee Wee Herman as an American version of Mr. Bean if he was a chaotic bottom that's what I would describe Pee Wee Herman as yeah I think that about sums it up I think Mr. Bean is probably the closest comparison we have to that kind of thing especially that thing where it's like it's kind of for kids, but also not, question mark? Yeah, entirely child-friendly and something that children do mm. adore, but adults can really see like the comedy and the value in it and really appreciate yeah. what's going on with it. Yeah, 100%. So we should say, yeah, so Paul Rubens was, um, you know, as you say, a comedian. He was a member of the Groundlings for a long time, mm. where he met uh, Phil Hartman, another hero of this show, oh, yeah. formerly of The Simpsons. And formerly of being alive, um, unfortunately murdered by his own wife uh, after Andy Dick got her really high. And yeah, she relapsed into cocaine addiction and shot Phil Hartman, yes. And herself. And herself. Okay, we can't forget about that. Yeah, she did do that. And that's entirely Andy Dick's fault. It is. It is. Did you hear that John Lovitz just like full on decked him after that happened? I yeah. did, and rightly Big so. John if I ever saw, if I ever, if I ever saw Andy Dick in the streets, I'd go for him. <laughs> just unrestrained. <laughs> I'd just unrestrained beatdown of Andy Dick. <laughs> How dare he take Phil Hartman? I know us. what a bastard. What a bastard. So back um, to Paul anyway, Rubens. We're not, here, we're not here to talk about that. This is not the R.I.P. Andy well, Dick show. This is the R.I.P. Paul Rubens. <laughs> it fucking will be if I ever see him. <laughs> Invite Andy Dick on the show and I'll fucking have him. <laughs> um, 
Can bounce his head off every wall, mate. <laughs> he made the Simpsons shit. It's, yeah, by, yeah. Phil Hartman's death by is indirectly by indirectly killing Phil. Yeah, Hartman. Phil Hartman's death definitely correlates with the the downfall of the Simpsons. But this is not the Simpsons podcast. It could be, and it should be by all rights. It really it's a borderline case. Every episode. I mean, it is a borderline Simpsons podcast. There are more Simpsons references in this show than anything else. Like. It's ridiculous the amount of Simpsons shit that's in the show. But yes, what I was saying was uh, Phil Hartman was a member of the improv. Not Phil Hartman, although he was yes. too. Paul Rubens was a member of the uh, uh, improv troupe, the Groundlings, uh, which was basically at one point a recruiting ground for Saturday Night Live. Um, he was almost recruited for Saturday Night Live, but he was like the last guy who didn't make the cut from that year's crop of the Groundlings. Something which tormented him. Uh, basically for the rest of his career from what I was reading. Okay. And uh, it was at that point that he was like, well, I don't need Saturday Night Live. I'm going to make my own weird sketch show with blackjack and hookers. And Male hookers. what he came out with, well, we'll get there. <laughs> um, what he came out with was essentially the Pee Wee Herman show. There's a few steps in between, which is that he created um, Pee Wee Herman originally as like a... Uh, like the bit with Pee Wee Herman, in as much as there is a bit with Pee Wee Herman, was that like he was a stand up who was very bad at stand up. And the character just apparently killed. Because um, he's like, apparently all the mannerisms were the same. He was just like some, some, like it was all the same thing. It was just the thing of like he was a character that Rubens would do as part of the Groundlings show who would come on and just tell like shit jokes in that voice. That's really that just weird. Intentionally not work. That. That's yeah. not how I think of Pee Wee Herman. Pee Wee Herman is kind of this, like, you know, bizarre man-child who lives in, like, you know, a, a house full of gadgets and toys and is just completely irresponsible well, and only cares about his bike that he absolutely does have sex with. Like, that's a thing, right? <laughs> well, we kind of it kind of evolved into that because shortly after... Because this character was somehow a big hit. And then <laughs> yeah, shortly weirdly. after that, he devised... <laughs> He devised the Pee Wee Herman show with Phil Hartman, which was the live show. Uh, apparently, a lot more adult oriented than what you would know him for in his kind of TV and film work. Okay. Um, but then, basically, off the back of that, they got a comedy special, which was just the Pee Wee Herman show as a TV special. And then, off the back of that, he was doing the rounds on like Letterman and all these other shows, right? Um, as Pee Wee Herman. Like, that was the weird thing. He was a rising star, but nobody knew who Paul Rubens was. He was Pee Wee Herman. Like, he never did a public in a public interview, like out of character, until he was promoting the film Mystery Man in 1999. So he just was Pee Wee Herman. Wow. Okay, that's which, interesting. Which may explain some of the reaction to the controversies later on. We'll get there. The so the thing to know about that is basically. He went on to make the film uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure because he was a hot property for some reason. Everyone loved Pee-wee Herman. He was just turning up on all these shows. Um, and, you know, people were just like, this guy, Pee-wee Herman, has big ratings. So they just wanted to make a movie. And, you know, the studio were like, right, Paul Rubens, get in here. What do you want to make? And he was like, what I want to do is Pee-wee Herman, but it's a remake of Pollyanna. <laughs> and they went, okay, fine. And then he was writing that film. And then he saw uh, Warner Bros. executives going around on their bikes, and he decided to immediately scrap the Pollyanna thing and go, what if I made a film about bikes? And Warner Bros. were, for some reason, just indulging him that day, and they went, yeah, fine, make it a film about bikes. And that's the bare bones of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. 
later on, he brings in Phil Hartman, his old buddy from the Groundling days, and he also hires some upstart kid that you've probably never heard of called Tim Burton. Never. Who at that point had only who had only made a couple of short films at that point, but was in a weirdly similar position where he'd worked for Disney, and they were like, "This guy's got something." But all these designs he keeps providing for these movies are like really weird, and I don't know. And it's like, ah, uh, he's like, because like Tim Burton's art style has always been Tim Burton's art style. Yes. And they even got him in to draw for uh, the Black Cauldron because so they were like, oh, this is a dark fantasy thing. Let's let's get Tim in on this. He could be like a lead designer for this. He made loads of weird, scary designs for them, and they went, no, too dark. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of went, no, go away. <laughs> and then through some sheer happenstance, Warner Bros. executives showed uh, Frankenweenie and Vincent, uh, Tim Burton's two short films, to Paul Rubens, who obviously saw what everyone now sees Tim Burton was at the time. He was like, get me this Burton kid. That's the one we need. And the rest, as they say, is history. And it quite literally is a match made in heaven, really. I mean, if we're going to start going into talking about yes. Pee-wee's Big Adventure. We will, but I just want to kind of finish the roundup on Paul Rubens please himself do, do. Uh, real briefly. I've done a deep dive into You this. have, and this is why I'm yeah, glad you're nice. leading this conversation, because I have not done nearly as much reading about Paul Rubens as what you have, but um, every little let me just say this you've listeners. been giving me in the past week or so has been fascinating, and I'm here for it. Let me just say this, listeners. We decided we were going to do a Paul Rubens thing because we heard he died, and we're like, ah, oh, Paul Rubens, he's fun. We've got some movies we can talk about. And then, you know, we sort of were talking about, uh, didn't he have kind of like a scandalous private life? And I, let's just say I've done a week of deep diving to make sure that we're not covering someone who might be, uh, beautiful. But, um... Say how it is, Aiden. that, you know, they might be a nonce case. Yeah, we thought he might be... Well, I, I was pretty sure he wasn't, but I needed to do a deep dive to no, just get the facts on I that. also was under the impression that he wasn't, so... Yeah, but we'll, we'll get to that. Just to briefly say. So, uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure comes out in 85... Pee-wee's Playhouse starts in 1986, which is like his big TV show, which ran, runs for five years. It's this crazy, massive success over in the States. Didn't really come here. Or at least... And I feel like... I feel like it perfectly aired over here. Like, people over here know who Pee-wee Herman is. I feel like it's the kind of thing where a certain generation of stoner has said to me, I've seen that show, in a way that implies it was aired at, like, midnight on Channel 4. <laughs> yeah, the um, only place suitable for it. Because I'd like to clarify, um, I've only ever seen clips of Pee-wee's Playhouse, and I feel like I may have seen it as a kid, but I really cannot remember. But it always struck me. I've definitely me seen. As... It's the kind of thing where I've seen bits and pieces. Yeah, and it is a fascinatingly bizarre show, especially for like what was essentially a Saturday morning children's show. Like it's incredibly weird, but also has like quite a lot of artistry and imagination behind it. Yeah. Like, it's very surreal. It's the kind of thing, it's a flash in the pan. Like, it would never get made now. No, no. Um, if it got made nowadays, people like would like, misconstrue it as some kind of weird piece of, like, you know, performance art horror kind of shit. I think. <laughs> Which it kind of is in yeah. a way, right? Like, I think it's only a hot, a short hop, skip, and a jump from Pee Wee's Playhouse to um, Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. I was, yeah, I was about to say, Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared has Pee Wee's Playhouse energy. <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so that uh, show ran for pretty successfully for about six years, and then uh, he kind of turned away from it, and the show was quite um, the show was cancelled. Basically, it finished. Um, there was another movie that was P- uh, Big Top Pee Wee, which was less uh, well received. We come to the year of our Lord, nineteen ninety one, where we find our hero, 
bent double in a movie theater whacking off allegedly we'll get to it immediately um yes yeah, so <laughs> there was a scandalous thing well let's there's no you know the man's dead let's not mince our words it was reported that Paul Rubens had been discovered uh, during a police raid of a pornographic movie theater, uh, enjoying a triple bill of kitschy porno treats. Um, so you know, nothing else. The man had stamina, and you know, God bless him. <laughs> God love him for it. And uh, yes, it was reported that he was uh, masturbating, which of course constitutes um, indecent exposure. This was a massive scandal at the time. And I do think part of that is like he'd never really appeared in public as Paul Rubens. He was Pee Wee Herman. So the headlines were not Paul Rubens found masturbating in movie theater. It was Pee Wee Herman found masturbating in movie theater. Which is infinitely more horrifying and shocking, let's face it. Yes, I mean, frankly, if you're trying to have a five-knuckle shuffle whilst watching some grot and you turn there's Pee Wee, then that's um, that's unnerving. (laughs) I mean, I, I don't know. If I was trying to, you know spill my beans in a movie theatre just behind me heard, ha! I'd be like <laughs> that would just fucking freak the shit out of me. I would and be okay for the record that. listeners Mark is regularly trying to spill his beans in a pornographic movie theatre. It's, it's true, it's you know, it's all I ever do. In fact, when he heard of uh, Paul Rubin's death, he went immediately to his local grot theatre and in his honour shed many a, a pearly tear. Much like when, uh, you know, our, our, our queen died. <laughs> the we had to give him Old Queenie gave the gave Paul Rubens the twenty one comes salute. This is the worst thing we've ever said on this show. Um, yeah, the man is dead. Show some respect. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, we should also say, for the benefit of listeners who might be sitting there thinking, wasn't there also a little bit of a Nazi scandal with Paul Rubens? I'm just going to clear the air right now. And um, look, I've done a deep dive on this. I won't bore you with the details because we need to get into the movie. But um, and also, literally, this has been his obsession for the yes. last week. It's it's well, actually concerning. I didn't want to honour a paedophile, Mark, and it turns out we were not honouring a paedophile. Good, but suffice you know. it to say, <laughs> suffice it to say, yes, it is true that Paul Rubens was um, arrested on suspicion of owning uh, child pornography. This was later thoroughly disproved. The DA's office, in fact, even uh, made a statement that after going through his his computer and his large collection of erotic material, I never said the guy wasn't a weirdo, listeners, I just said he wasn't a pedo. Um, (laughs) Two very different things. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yeah, he... A pervert and not a nonce, like, you know. (laughs) He he had a large collection of vintage erotic material, uh, which seemed to be mostly of the homosexual persuasion. Uh, indeed, I've actually seen some sources claim that Paul Rubens' collection is almost um, uh, like he was almost a savior of gay erotic art, and the fact that there are several pieces that would have been lost had he not found them in his collection. Um, I did read something along those lines. I read that he was very much into vintage um, yes. pornography, and he would bulk buy it as well. Like he would just buy yes. job lots of vintage porn. Like he wouldn't even look yes. at it. He would just be like, sort of go, "Here's a box of old gay porn," and he'd be like, "Just give it." Like yeah. he, he was mad for it. Yeah, because it wasn't necessarily even about tessellation. It was, you know, it was a. Um, I mean, he like, had a I'm, hobby. I'm, you know, yeah, he collect, and it should be noted as well that Paul Rubens collected all manner of different things, like really just odd things. Like he seemed to be a bit of a hoarder in general. But um, yeah, certainly he had one of the world's leading uh, collections of vintage gay art. Um, 
the vast majority of which appears to be uh, along the theme of basically muscle men. So how that was construed as gay as child pornography, I don't know. And it should be stated that um, the person who described in the press, uh, so this is someone from the uh, from uh, local law enforcement at the police department or the DA's office, who described it as um, a collection that contained kiddie porn, had never seen any of the images in the collection. So they were just lying. And that's a matter of public record. Um, the police department eventually talked him down to an obscenity charge plea deal which he took and he openly talked about the fact that he only took that plea deal uh, because he didn't want to have to go through the courts and have his name dragged through the mud once again um so you know it's understandable uh, it should also be stated when we're talking about that element that um his sister was a well and still is a prominent uh, civil rights lawyer who specialised in cases involving the LGBT community. So there's certainly an element, I feel, of him wanting to protect her and not wanting her name associated with uh, this kind of stuff, I guess. So, oh yes, and the other thing that should be stated is that when the obscenity uh, charge was brought against him, it was done so on the very, very last day it was possible to do so via statute. So it certainly seems like it was done just to be a dick about it. Um, yeah, from everything that you've told me, both on mic and off mic, about this whole like Paul Rubens thing, like the whole scandal behind it, because uh, one thing that um, we both uh, read about was how it was like a very tenuous link to Jeffrey Jones. Yes, that like possibly incited this whole investigation into his like pornographic material. Called, no, definitely this, did. Because um, this was did, yeah, yeah, this was around the time that he got busted. And if you know people yeah. don't know who he uh, is, a pedophile. Yeah, like uh, know, actual pedophile. Yeah, convicted. Very talented actor. Yeah, unfortunately, but, a, a terrible pedo. Yeah. Um, so you know, there's definitely the, yes, a, there's definitely a lot of sniping in this story it yeah, feels like and he it's was my, very much targeted yeah. it's my feeling and I think it's the stance of this podcast that Rubens was targeted for being both gay and a children's entertainer um, yeah this is not necessarily something that we're going to delve into in much depth after we've had this talk this is just something that I think we both felt like we needed to get out there and be like look we've done the research we've cleared him we've okayed him <laughs> yeah and I think, you know, there's a, the other reason we're doing this episode as well is because we both clearly have, like, an affection for Paul Rubens and the performances that he put in, like, you know. And if Kino Inferno is about anything, it's about shouting out the weirdo queers of the world. And Certainly is. We, Certainly we, you know, is. Paul Rubens is, you know, upon the highest pantheon of the weirdo queers, I suppose. Yeah. And I think this is just us doing our tiny part to... I mean, I think he kind of rehabilitated his own image over the years, but like... Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, But I it, also think, like, you know, we're, we're just contributing to that thing of his legacy not being all about the scandal. Yeah, exactly. I know, obviously, we, you know, mostly you have talked about it at length, but I think there's a lot of people out there who might be listening to this who likely only know of, like, the allegations and maybe just, like, the surface details of it. And I think it is important to know exactly what happened and to know that it seems like he was just targeted and really fucking stitched up in a lot of ways. No, yeah, they railroaded him. There's no other way yeah. to put it. Like they would like just just the very fact that like all the charges were dropped and then this obscenity charge comes out of nowhere on the very last possible day that it can. It just shows they had it out for him. It's vindictive. Yeah, 100%. Because they knew they knew he wouldn't want to go to court, so they knew he'd take a plea deal. That that's what that is. And look, we've said it before, we'll say it again. Fuck the police. Yeah, just fuck him. 
Yeah. But don't actually then, fuck them. No, that would be wrong. Unless they're sort of village people type muscle cops, then I think Paul would be quite yeah. into that. Um, or like, you know, a, a busty lady cop who has a thing for handcuffs. Yeah, well, we're straying into... Oh my god, he's doing a Paul Rubens right now. Um, <laughs> Sorry. The, um, the um, Yes, I think the net result of that is like... It's always good to question what you hear about people. And the thing as well is like... He's been dead a week and nothing's come out about him apart from good things. And yeah. in this day and age, the minute a nonce drops dead, it all comes out. Yeah, I, I think, like, I was saying this to you as well earlier, how, like, the biggest part of the scandal that most people seem to talk about is the the public masturbation thing. And I think yeah. in, like, modern attitudes, that's really not something that's as frowned upon. Like, he was yeah. in a porn theatre. What the fuck else are you expected to do in a porn theatre, you know? Well, like, this is the crazy thing, isn't it? Before internet pornography's wide availability, it's like, what, society just agreed that there was a place that you could go to watch erotic films, but if you dared to masturbate, you were... Mm. Out of order. And another thing to point out about that is like porno theatres were regular. I mean, we know this from the film uh, Knife Plus Heart, which listened to season one, episode two. Yes. Yes, but um, yes, uh, they were meetups for queer people in general because it was one of the few places you could go and basically meet people for hookups that was like secluded and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, yeah. and you could meet you can meet like minded people and like. You know, depending on what film they were going to see, you could have a guess uh, guess at what they were sort of into. And like, yeah. look, that was one of the unideal parts of uh, queer culture at that time. It was like it had to be so behind closed doors that like, you know, it is one of those things. And to be clear, the police were committing raids of those places because they were gay hangouts. That's something yeah. that I just think we need to like underline and underscore. Uh, Paul Rubens was very um, private about his personal life. It seems to be widely agreed upon that he was some stripe of LGBT. Um, I would wager on raging homosexual bottom myself. <laughs> Given um, the extent <laughs> of his vintage porn collection and the contents within, I think I'm inclined to agree with you, Aiden. Yes. <laughs> but look, I just think, you know, he's obviously a character that we feel some affinity for. Um, yeah, definitely. And he's obviously like somebody who whose work we've both enjoyed on some level. Um, I'm always delighted to see Paul Rubens pop up in a film or a TV yep. show, as he often does. Um, yeah, so we just wanted to contribute to his uh, obituaries not all being about... I mean, we've talked a lot about the scandal. <laughs> True, but uh, I think I think it's a necessary part of the discussion, especially when, you know, he has been so unfairly maligned by a lot yeah. of people for a long time. And as you say, he did a really good job on, like you say, rehabilitating his career, because, I mean, uh, was, it, was it 2016? That we had the the latest Pee Wee movie, Pee Wee's Big Vacation, is it? Pee Wee's Big, big Vacation or Big Holiday, big which holiday. is on Netflix. Which neither, neither of us have seen, seen it. Admit. Neither of us have seen it. We wanted to watch it, but neither of us had time. But um, it was uh, I'll certainly watch it in the coming weeks. But um, yeah, and it had yeah, a really and that good reception didn't it, from what I gather. So yeah, and apparently, like, kind of confirms Pee Wee Herman as being gay, which is interesting. I mean, Pee Wee's Big Adventure kind of confirms he's gay because, like, he gets asked out by a woman in the first ten minutes, and just immediately is like, "Absolutely not." <laughs> yeah, he's like, "Nah, sweetheart." But then, <laughs> but then when a, a big burly prisoner, a big burly ex-con comes along in his car, he's like, Ooh. <laughs> "Like, he immediately just puts on a dress and just <laughs> swoons over." <laughs> and it should be said as well. Like, I've read a lot of comments on articles about Paul Rubens. A recurring thing that people who watched uh, um, Pee-wee's Playhouse in the 80s have said about it is like, their dads would come in and be like, what's this fruit that you're watching? 
what's this gay shit? And it's like, you know, talking about him being railroaded, talking about him being unfairly maligned by his industry and law enforcement and society as a whole. I think we know why. I think we know why. Yeah, and to be honest, like of all the clips I've seen from Pee Wee's Playhouse, I can see how people would read it that way, but the one in particular that I'm still utterly obsessed with is just Grace Jones appearing on the Christmas special, singing a techno dance version of Little Drummer Boy, composed by David Bowie, might I point out. Yeah, and that um, that Christmas that is special the, is, is literally the gayest gay thing. Icons. Yeah. <laughs> it is the gayest thing. <laughs> like, and it's fucking wonderful, and I urge you all to find it on it YouTube. It is great. It. It's fantastic. So, um, with that said, Mark, shall we? Well, we'll pour out a big, we'll pour out a big bucket of win for Paul Rubens. One hundred percent. Yeah, you know, pour but, one out for a fallen hero, and then we'll just move on to uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, probably his definitive work of cinema. Yeah, I think it's the de facto Paul Rubens artifact, isn't it? Like, it's... yes, I mean, it's his, it's his big, it's literally his big movie. My grandma. Hello, Dottie. It's me, Pee Wee. Where are you calling from? Texas. Where? Honest. Listen, I'll prove it. The stars at night are big and bright. Big in the heart of Texas. <laughs> so, Pee Wee's Big Adventure from 1985 is certainly a film (laughs) in the loosest sense it's a film so the movie is kind of a road trip comedy i guess uh, revolving around the man-child character peewee herman who has a really nice bike what gets nicked and he has to track down said bike and along the way, he gets into all sorts of mishaps and, and uh, misadventures, including, but not limited to, um, hitching a ride with an escaped car, which yep. is one of my favourite parts of the movie. That's one of the best scenes of the movie, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, he ends up at a biker bar, um, where he does a he fruity little... He picked up by Large Marge. He does get picked up by the ghost of Large Marge in what can only be described as a traumatic sequence. It's, um, yeah, I feel like that scene is more legendary than the movie at this point. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, he does a fruity little dance for some bikers. <laughs> Biker he bar. does, to the song Tequila. Um, he does. Uh, yeah. He ends up uh, in Hollywood at one point, because um, yeah. it turns out his bike is being used in a Hollywood picture. Which, About nuns? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> And uh, yes, there are all sorts of uh, bizarre misadventures along the way. We can't um, forget that he goes to the Alamo. He goes to the Alamo, of course. Uh, and in fact, when when he died, the um, that little Alamo place, wherever it is in Texas, mm. they put out on their Twitter, um, the, you know, they put out a little R.I.P. to Paul Rubens, and they also mentioned like he's the cause of at least one person every single day asking where the basement is. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. That is also my favourite gag in the movie after he's being yeah. revived by all yeah. the people. I remember <laughs> the Alamo, yeah. And everyone just cheers. It's so fucking funny. That's like, yeah. There's, I mean, there's some jokes in this that do live in my head rent-free. Like, like uh, I think that's shortly after that sequence where he calls Dottie from Texas and he's like, okay, I'm in Texas. Look, let me prove it. The stars are at night. I'm big and bright, and everyone just goes down in the heart of Texas. Yeah. <laughs> With the claps as well. 
<laughs> so, yeah, that entire scene in Texas is fucking brilliant. It's so funny. I mean, this whole movie is such a bizarre artifact because, like, it is a kind of thing where, like, I, I don't know what your relationship to this movie is, but I'd only really heard of it as being like Tim Burton's first film, and it wasn't until after yeah, I had some content legacy. Yeah, yeah, because to me, Paul Rubens was the spleen. So finding out that there was a movie like Tim Burton's first movie featured the spleen as the lead role i was like oh i'll definitely have to check that out and i think the first time i saw it i was just kind of like i don't really understand this like i was, ent- I was entertained by it because mm. like, i think i was like i probably you know in my sort of teenage years if i was tracking down tim burton movies so i think i was like a little too old for it to be like a kid movie and not old enough to appreciate it as the zany comedy that it is and so i think there was part of me that was just like this is very strange. I don't really know what to make of this. I think I'm. I think I'd seen it as a kid, maybe because I'm pretty sure, like, I can remember my dad talking about Pee Wee at certain points. So, like, I feel like I must have seen it when I was younger, but I didn't really remember it. But I, you know, there's certain scenes from it that I did recall. Uh, you know, the the Alamo scene and yeah. Large Marge, especially because that's like, you know, infamous online for being one of yeah. the scariest scenes in a non i have definitely movie. seen the Large Marge scene several times before I'd seen the yeah. film. Yeah, 100%. And that is arguably the most Tim Burton part of the film. <laughs> yeah, I think that and the, the dream sequence with the clown doctors. Yeah, that's pretty fucking weird. Um, and uh, the whole... I mean, obviously, it's... It, I love that the there's, people, there's going movie. to be people listening to this who haven't seen the film who are just like... What on God's earth is this movie? <laughs> but that's that's the movie. Like it is just it's just a series of bits. Like yeah. there's there is the plot is this is what you described. Pee Wee has a bike. Bike goes missing. Pee Wee find bike. That is that's the plot. That is as yeah. far as the plot goes. There's a couple of little side characters that have little little stories going on, but they're they're so like inconsequential to the entire thing that like it yeah. just moves past them quite breezily. Um because yeah, the movie decides to be like, oh, there's a waitress that's un- you know unsatisfied with her life, and there's lots of innuendos about Pee Wee Nobbin her that her boyfriend that's knows about. That's a very funny scene. It's very funny. Uh, well, that's kind of was, the thing was... that's interesting about this movie. It's like I always think of it as you know, it's Pee Wee Herman. It's like a kids' movie, and it is like it's the kind of film that would play very well to children. I think because I think Paul Rubens was just very dialed into like what kids find funny. Um, I, I think visually as well because it's very bright, very colourful, very yeah. kinetic. Yeah, it's and it's got. I think any kid can relate like. to Pee Wee Herman because like he he just is this like man child character, right? Yeah, I think the 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 first scene when he gets his bike out from the the secret hiding bush place he keeps it, which is fantastic, and I love that. Um, and he's talking to is it Lance? Is the character is that the character's name? His neighbour, his rich neighbour. His neighbour, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's Lance. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna confirm that. Otherwise, I'm gonna sound like an absolute dum dum, and I don't want to do that. I know you are, but what am I? <gasps> uh, from, from oh, Francis. His name's Francis. Oh, Francis. <laughs> oh, yeah, the villain character. Yeah, Francis. Yeah. I, I'm thinking Lance because of um, mystery men, aren't I? Yeah, Lance Hunt is Captain Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've literally just to clarify, listeners. I finished watching Mystery Men for this episode. I'm, about an hour ago, roughly. Um, but yeah, Francis, where you have the first scene where they interact on the, the sidewalk, and it is just two children bickering. Yeah, well, they and literally do the, like, I know you are, but what am I? Yeah, and, and it's like, it's so obnoxious that it becomes yeah. really funny, I think. I like and as well the, it, the exchange where, in that exchange where he's like, um, 
He said, well, they do the whole, make me, make me, make you, make me, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then uh, he goes, make me. And uh, Pee Wee goes, I don't make monkeys, I just train them. <laughs> <laughs> like, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, and then it just flies off the handle from there and just becomes like one weird skit after another. Yeah. And like, I feel like it's hard to really talk about this movie because it is just bits. It's just, it just moves from bit well, to it, bit. I think as well, it's like, it's kind of parodying the like Americana road movie type situation. Yeah. Cause if you think about all the characters that Pee Wee kind of comes across, like, like I said, there's like the ex con who's on the run. There's like, yeah. the, like the hell's angels at the bar. There's like a hobo on a train. It's like, it's almost like Hartman and Rubens are like just parodying those typical American road movie ideas. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, this is such a fucking weird movie. Like, I was watching it last night, and I was just baffled by parts of it. Like, yeah, it's very strange. By it. I mean, we um, should try well, and move through it as best we can. So we kind of open with Pee Wee Herman's daily... Well, we open with his dream of winning the Tour de France. Yes, That's just how <laughs> which the obviously starts. sets up the bike club affair quite yeah. well. Um, and we see his kind of Wallace and Gromit-esque house as he wakes up. He's got all these Rube Goldberg machines making him breakfast and stuff. Um, now... I just want to quickly ask, I feel like that could have potentially been an influence on Wallace and Gromit, because didn't Aardman work on Pee-wee's Playhouse? That sounds plausible. For, I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that some of the animated segments on Pee-wee's Playhouse were done by Aardman, but like, when was the first Wallace and Gromit? Late 80s, I think. Yeah, so maybe it was just beforehand. It's so, possible. We don't I, know I mean, time. I'm obviously saying, you know, like it ripped it off or anything, but I can't help but feel like, because that scene really did remind me of the, the Wallace and Gromit yeah. breakfast stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's very similar. Like, not in a, not in a rip-off-y way, it's just kind of that thing. Of no. Like, yeah. I think Wallace that and Pee-wee are kind of similar characters in a way. They're like asexual man-children. <laughs> and they have dogs that <laughs> they yeah. really shouldn't be looking after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we go from there to kind of Pee-wee interacting, yeah, like you say, with Francis another man-child. Mm. Um, and that's something that's kind of funny about this movie, is that, like, Pee-wee interacts with some real children later on when he goes down to the bike shop where Dottie works, but there's characters like Francis and Dottie who are... They're also Pee-wees. They're, like, weird adult children. Dottie, who is played by the woman who voices Tommy Pickles in Rugrats. Yes, oh, and then. she sounds exactly like Tommy Pickles. She does, yeah. It's, it's, quite, it's quite disturbing hearing Tommy Pickles' voice come out of a lady's mouth. And she's like, the whole gag with her character is she's like cracking onto Pee-wee Herman. <laughs> For and some reason. Pee-wee's having none of it. <laughs> he just does not care. He just wants to get, up, get on his bike. That's all he wants. Yes, so then the bike goes missing. It does, and so he go. He tries searching for the bike. He goes to Francis's house and attacks him in the swimming pool, <laughs> which is a wild scene in itself. <laughs> like, it's hard to talk about this movie because we're just sitting here chuckling, talking about it. <laughs> and then I believe, isn't well, it? That scene really, that scene really tickles me. Where he just it's goes very into... funny. <laughs> Oh, God. Yes. Um, but then Francis's uh, father convinces him that Francis had nothing to do with it. Yes. And then Pee-wee keeps searching. He then goes to a fun fair and meets a, like a, a psychic. 
Yes. Who is a con artist. Who well, there's, a great, there's a great gag where she goes, oh, have you got any money? He's like, well, you have to tell me something first. And she goes, you're looking for something. And he just hands over all his money from his little purse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we didn't mention that he goes to the joke shop because he that's a thing that he does as well. Yeah, that's kind of a he, scene that doesn't really add anything. Yeah, he just goes to stock upon supplies. It's just a bit for prop comedy, really, isn't it? Um, but no, when he goes to the fun fair, he goes to see the psychic, and she just bullshits him and says, oh, it's at the Alamo. Yes. So he goes to the Alamo. <laughs> and we should say as well, he does go to the cops, and they tell him that they can't, they never, they don't often find missing bikes. But I think that's one of the funniest cuts in the movie, where it cuts to him in the police station. It's just a policewoman going, and why do you think the Soviets are involved? <laughs> <laughs> That feels very Phil Hartman, that bit, yeah. I think. That's a Phil Hartman inclusion. Well, there's a lot of kind of that, that sort of dry humour of his, I think, in this movie, which yeah. I think kind of helps it work. Is like, this isn't set in the same sort of universe as Pee-wee's Playhouse. It's like, no, sort of real world adjacent, in a sense. And it's like, Pee-wee Herman's this like crazy cartoon character who keeps running into these also exaggerated characters, but then there's also characters who will respond to him like a normal person would. Yeah, definitely. And because then he also he also gathers the town together to share in his conspiracy theories about his bike being missing, which is then what leads him (laughs) to the psychic because they turn against him. Yes, he does, and he has like a a sort of frantic war speech where everyone's just really confused by what the hell he's doing. One of my favorite gags in that is that one of the crowd is, is like one of the members of the crowd is like talking, and he goes. Have you got anything to share with the rest of us, amazing Larry? And then it just cuts to this old man with like a multicolored mohawk. He's just like, no. And there's just no explanation given for what that is. It's just like, that's amazing Larry, I guess. Sure. Don't worry about it. Move, next, next gag. Next Move gag. on. <laughs> yes, he then, yeah, he strikes out on his own to go to the Alamo. And he's then picked up by the mysterious ex-con. Who uh, it turns out is uh, he's well the the law want him for um, he got real mad one day he took out his knife and removed the the tack off a mattress. <laughs> um, and as they pull him over, Pee Wee suddenly just it just cut it hard cuts from him being in his trademark suit to being dressed up as a woman, which yeah, well that's because they the 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 police are onto him. Remember, so like there's they need to cross the state lines. Uh, but so Pee Wee, there is there is a setup to it where Pee Wee's like, is there? I've I've got an idea here, and then it comes to him like fully in drag, like yeah, that's what I mean. Like there's a job. Then cut. he's because then the the uh, the, the ex con guy's like wearing a false beard as well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's made all the more it's made all the more absurd by the fact they're like twenty yards away from the state line, <laughs> and there's absolutely <laughs> no need for them to do this. <laughs> And it's also even weirder that the police officer that stops them just starts chirps and peewee. <laughs> like, he's into Paul Rubens and drag. I also like the fact that the, the peewee and drag joke isn't like, oh, a boy wearing women's clothes. Like, the joke is just he's, like, weirdly into a very specific drag character that he's set up. But he's, <laughs> he's just being like, oh, mad. Da, 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 da. Like, you know. <laughs> and it's never brought up again, either. <laughs> he yes. just abandons that afterwards. And then, uh, yeah, the, the ex-con uh, chucks him out of, after Pee-wee nearly crashes the car at one point in a very bizarre sequence. Um, that and is then, a strange scene, actually. And then, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I like the fact that when he part, they part ways, the, 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 
the fucking criminal on the run whose name just keeps escaping me. He's like, I like you, kid. <laughs> so you don't want to get mixed up with a guy like me. <laughs> His name is Mickey Morelli. Yes, Mickey, and of course. The actor who plays him has the strangest name I've seen for a while. His name is Judd Omen. It's a pretty good name. As in, as in the Omen. That's like, a pretty good name. <laughs> that's a terrifying Judd name. I feel like that should have been the character's name. I feel like this should be Judd Omen played by Mickey Morelli. <laughs> but I think the thing I like about Mickey is like he's like weirdly just into Pee Wee. <laughs> like, like when he first gets into Mickey's car, like it seems like oh this could go you know this could go wrong for Pee Wee. But no, the gag is literally just he, like he leaves Pee Wee in the middle of nowhere because he's like you don't want to get mixed up with a guy like me. I like you, kid. I really like you. <laughs> <laughs> Which obviously is like, like a, that's, that's also a parallel to what Pee Wee says to Dottie at the start, right? Where he's like, Yeah. You don't want to get mixed he says up he's with a loner. Like yeah. yeah, he's a loner and a rebel. Which <laughs> 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 is great. Um, yeah, we then go to that weird scene where you just see his eyes in the dark. Yeah, I found that genuinely kind of creepy. Very I'm strange. not going to lie. And then he was... manages to get a light on and you just see all these like animals. He's <laughs> just surrounded by wild creatures. Uh, most of which are taxidermied. <laughs> yeah, like they have that real like uncanny look to it. It's such a weird scene. And then he gets and picked up by Large Marge. Yes, which for Explain people to here the who folks are listening at home who, are, who Large Marge is. Yeah, I think for people here who don't know who Large Marge is, Large Marge is a uh, a burly lady uh, who's a truck driver who picks Pee Wee up in the middle of nowhere, and immediately you start like she's just the creepiest person because she just starts telling the story of the worst ever truck crash she's ever seen in her life and peewee is just like hanging on her every word like he is so into this story and completely petrified of it and then when she describes what the person looked like who they pulled out of the wreckage her face becomes this tim burton stop motion nightmare and it's fucking horrifying. Like, it's genuinely horrifying. I, this must have traumatized so many children back yeah, in the day. Yeah, it was one of those famously bizarre, traumatic children's movie things. And then the thing is, like, that scene is really weird because obviously she does, like, the weird stop motion face, which um, he kind of, Tim Burton kind of reuses in Sleepy Hollow, actually. There's a very similar scene in yeah, that. Yeah, he does, actually. Yeah. But um, yeah, so then, then uh, she drops Pee Wee off outside this, uh, this biker bar. Which is also weirdly surrounded by neon lit dinosaurs. D- don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about that. Um, it's just very strange, and that's kind of like that's what I mean about what you were saying about this. Like Tim Burton and Paul Rubens are kind of a match made in heaven. Where this film, I think, it's definitely that weird thing where it almost has the bottle rocket Wes Anderson thing, where like you can see the beginnings of Tim Burton's style taking shape. And it's not until Beetlejuice that you get like that pure Burton vision. Yeah. But I think this kind of mixed in with the Paul Rubens, like very kind of howdy doody sort of weird 1950s cartoon aesthetic. It blends together really well because I think they both do that thing of like something slightly sinister, but also kind of innocent to both of their aesthetics. There's some, yeah, there's some kind of like absurd darkness lurking beneath this very sort of innocent exterior yeah they both do that really well i think the the glue that really binds them together as well is also the danny elfman score because obviously this was the first time elfman worked the relentless danny elfman score yeah it is it's it's elfman going hard like and it's i was listening to it, i was like yeah like 
this sounds just like the Beetlejuice music as well. Yeah. And then obviously, and it's also somehow perfect for Pee Wee Herman. Like that, that's one thing I say about Danny Elfman as a as a composer. Like I think um, some of his scores are more interesting than others, but I do think that he is pretty unparalleled as a composer for like character themes. Yeah, and like so, like you think of we were talked about this on the, one of the Batman episodes, right? Where like the Batman theme is the fucking Batman theme, right? Like, there's never been a Batman theme so Batman as that. But yeah, this. But then this is like perfect for Pee Wee Herman because it's got that like, like that kind of like relentlessly like chaotic theme that keeps yeah playing throughout. It's like. Yeah, it kind of it completely encapsulates just like the sort of weird little chaotic gremlin of a man. He is a little chaos goblin. <laughs> he is like he just brings chaos wherever he goes, but also like not in a malicious way. Pee Wee is never malicious. No. He's always kind of innocent and wholesome. I think. Yeah. So we go apart from, from when it comes to Francis when he attacks him in that pool, that's pretty. Yeah, that's the one time he's he's violent. But um, <laughs> he so he goes into the biker bar, um, and they immediately confirm that Marge, Large Marge was a ghost. Yeah, um, I particularly like the the element that the barkeep tells him the exact same story, like down to the word that Large Marge yeah. told him. <laughs> and the funniest thing about it is a... that it, it, there's a close upon Pee Wee, and he's like, "So the Large Marge I travelled with was a," and then it just kind of fades away, and then fades back to the bar later on. It's like oh, we're just never going to address that again. Then there's just a fucking <laughs> ghost in this movie, and that's fine. <laughs> I don't know why, but it just reminds me of the whole Mighty Boosh thing. Did you see Elsie? Did you dance with her? Yeah, we all did. It gives me that kind of fun. There is a bit of an old Greg element to it. (laughs) Pee Wee Herman and old Greg have got some similarities. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Yes, so then what happens? Let's think about this movie. What even happens? Uh, So he, he goes to the biker bar and then he leaves... And then he knocks their bikes over. That comes later, actually, because he goes to the Alamo first, doesn't he? I can't remember now. Yeah. No, no, you actually know, because Large Mars drops him off at the diner, where he meets... Ah, yes, the biker bar comes later, doesn't it? Yes, because then he's hanging out with um, the waitress and the neon dinosaurs. Oh, yes, which we have the scene where it's it's an innuendo-laden scene, (laughs) which is supposed to be like a a deep character moment. I've always wanted to go to France, but everyone I know has got a big butt. Let's talk about your butt. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's kind of like that. That scene actually kind of encapsulates that one of the things about Pee Wee Herman. I think where it's like, okay, because that's like childish innuendo that kids would get. Like it's not, yeah, yeah, it's not too dirty. It's not. It's not anything that's going to make the adults in the audience uncomfortable. But like, you know, it's 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 cheeky innuendo, but also yeah. at the same time, the scene is like entirely sincere to the characters. Like, yeah, and the it's, characters it's just are the not guy like here no, no, wink, wink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes it like that because she has this bit where she says, "Oh, no one's ever put it to me like that before," <laughs> which is probably the filthiest gag. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, uh, so her, then her boyfriend turns up and chases Pee Wee around with a big, with a big bone. Yes, he does. And she he does took do from that. the dinosaur exhibit outside the diner. Yes, uh, her boyfriend Andy. Very uh, so very normal movie. Yeah, and so uh, Pee Wee then escapes on a train. The... Yes, and that's where he meets the hobo. <laughs> I forgot about the hobo. <laughs> this is a very brief scene where, like, yeah, it starts off with Pee Wee and the hobo singing together, and then as it goes on, the hobo is just relentlessly singing American like campfire songs <laughs> to the point where Pee Wee just bails off the train. <laughs> 
and then arrives at the Alamo. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and discovers that it does not, in fact, have a basement, like uh, the fake psychic told him so. Yes. Uh, then we go to the biker bar. Where he does not fit in. He, yes, because he's trying to talk on the phone to, to Dottie. And um, the bikers are being rowdy, so he tells them, I'm trying to talk on the phone here. So then they decide that he has to die. Um, interestingly, the uh, the busty biker mama who tries to kill him is none other than Elvira herself. Uh, is that really? Pinson. Yes, it is, yes. To um, be fair, that makes sense, because I knew that they were friends. Yeah. So that does make sense. Yeah, I did not realise that was her, to be honest. But then I've, I'm, most, I'm mostly just used to seeing as Elvira, I suppose. Which I think is interesting, because I recently rewatched uh, Ed Wood. Uh, mm. It's a great film. Um, yeah, yeah. But obviously another Tim Burton picture. But that movie uh, ends with the title card about Vampira trying to sue Elvira for stealing her bit. I'm always like, I wonder if Elvira saw that film and was like, Tim, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know because Cassandra. I mean, Peter's it did. It did me. happen. Like that is true. Like Vampira did yeah. try to sue Elvira. Yeah, I, I don't. Know. I think Cassandra Peterson's got a good enough sense of humor for that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like that strikes me as the kind of thing that she would joke about as the Elvira character. I think. When so. When are we doing Aiden and Mark versus Elvira, Mistress of the Dark slash Elvira's Haunted Hills? That's the real question. Um, right now, because I. Fucking love Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. I How do you feel about Elvira's really... Haunted Hills? I have seen it. Um, I think it's okay. I don't think it's particularly great. Uh, my favourite bit is the the dude who's like the parody of the bad dubbing in old horror movies, where like he's <laughs> his voice is permanently out of sync with his mouth, and they just run that fucking gag into the ground. <laughs> oh, and uh, Richard O'Brien constantly being kicked in the balls is pretty. Does Paul great. Rubens appear in either of those movies? Do you know what? I'm not sure, to be honest. I'd be surprised I if he didn't have some kind of like voice cameo, at least. Yeah, I would be surprised as well. But like, I didn't actually realise I was still looking for his IMDb. Like, in because I thought about like, well, when was the last time I actually saw Paul Rubens and something, and I couldn't really think about. It. But like, very prolific voice actor in yeah, like, the last yeah. sort of ten years or so. Um, his most recent voice credit, he was in the latest series of Bob's Burgers, which yeah, I that's, that's actually the series that hasn't aired yet. I think. Yeah. I didn't realise he was in that, so... Yeah, well, um, he's, not been, he's not been yet, to be fair. Well, yeah. I've not heard his um, episode, but, um, yeah. But, you know, so for, a, for a last thing to be in... Wikipedia. Yeah. yeah, good stuff. He'd been in Gotham, actually, interesting, because we mentioned that he... Because um, I think we mentioned that uh, he was in Batman Returns as... Um, uh, what do you call it? The Penguin's dad. Yes. And also, the, 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 the waitress from this movie is Penguin's mum, right? In, in that scene. I think so, yes. I believe I'm right in saying um, that would make sense. Um, yes, and uh, but uh, interestingly, he kind of somewhat reprised that role on the TV show Gotham. I he did plays, hear about this actually. It's not the same character, but it is that that version of the Penguin's father, also played by Paul Rubens. He was apparently one of the highlights of that show, to no one's surprise. Yeah, I never saw Gotham. I heard it was not strong. I heard it got better as it went, but I don't believe the people who told me that. Yeah, I heard Cameron Monaghan's character. The Joker, who is who is Joker, but not Joker. Apparently, he's quite great, but he's a good actor anyway. So he is the Joker. Like I, we don't have time for this, but he plays <laughs> he don't. plays twin brothers, one of whom is definitely the Joker. So, shall we wrap up on the plot of Pee Wee's Big Adventure? Yeah, such as it is. So, um, yes, we should say, yeah. Uh, well, he almost gets killed by the bikers. He does a little dance to the song Tequila, um, which for some reason, one. for no discernible reason, wins the bikers round. 
Um, they give him a motorbike, which he immediately crashes. He ends up in hospital, <laughs> where he sees that the um, the bike that he's been looking for this whole movie is being used in a Hollywood movie. So he books it to Hollywood to uh, go and get the bike back from a very uh, hilarious child actor character. It's just like a little gobshite. I've forgotten that scene was in it at all, but... My favourite joke in that scene, the one that kind of blindsided me the most, is where Pee Wee is in the scene that they're filming as a nun. Yes. And uh, he's talking about, oh, you've really inspired us. He goes, yes, you've inspired me. I'm going to go start a paper round. It just steals his bike <laughs> and just walks off the set. Which leads <laughs> to a really... wild chase sequence through the, the Warner Bros. back lot, where Godzilla has a cameo in this film. That's true. So... And the funniest thing about that is they're filming a Godzilla movie and it's not even like licensed friendly Godzilla. It's, it's fucking Godzilla, and he's fighting King Ghidorah. Are Toho aware that this movie happened? <laughs> because I don't know if you know much about Toho, but they are very litigious. Like that joke, oh, that joke be. in Austin Powers Two, where he's like, "It's Godzilla." No, for legal reasons, we must clarify it is not Godzilla. But still, we should run as though it is Godzilla. Like that joke is in there because they wanted to use Godzilla in that scene, and Toho were like, "Absolutely not, not in an Austin Powers movie." Get a fuck. Like, they're very litigious. So either Paul Rubens got this one <laughs> under the radar somehow, or they actually went to the effort of buying the rights to Godzilla to use in the Pee Wee Herman movie. Well, who who produced this movie? Was it Warner Brothers? I believe it was, yes. I feel like Warner Brothers may have been able to smooth that license over. Well, that's the thing. Warner Bros. has the American rights to Godzilla now, but at the time they didn't. Because it was right, um, okay. Columbia who owned Godzilla. He did the Roland Emmerich one. Ah, uh, see. Okay, well, I, I fuck knows how they managed it then. That makes it all the more baffling, right? But yeah. Anyway, um, that's just a little side note for all you G fans out there. <laughs> all four of you <laughs> sitting there sweating right now. We are Legion, Mark. <laughs> hey, I enjoy I enjoy the Zill myself, okay? I like the big Zills. Calm down. That's the worst name for him. I, I like to do a little Paul Rubens in the movie theatre when I'm watching Godzilla films. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a dog eating mayonnaise. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the long and short of it is Pee Wee gets his bike back. Hollywood decides to make a movie of Pee Wee's big adventure. Which is fucking bizarre and brilliant at the same time. It's one of the best gags in the movie where you suddenly have James Brolin playing uh, <laughs> P.W. Herman in the film. Um, For me, it's Pee-wee's cameo in the movie as the yeah, bellboy like bell with, like, with the most like deep baritone voice. Yeah, well, they've clearly dubbed him over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great. It's so great. I just love the idea that the film at the end of you watching this 90-minute like Road, mad road trip just acknowledges like this isn't a normal film Hollywood shouldn't have let us make this that's basically what the, the last gag is right where you, yeah. you know and also like Pee Wee Herman as the bellboy in the in the Pee Wee Herman movie is like constantly like barreling the lens as well <laughs> <laughs> which again this, this speaks to the comedy genius of Paul Rubens like his facial expressions and stuff like considering how exaggerated Pee Wee Herman's Pee Wee Herman's Pee Wee Herman is um in that scene where he's playing the bellhop in the movie of his own life, the gag of him like constantly staring down the lens is so underplayed. Like mm-hmm. it's obviously but it's noticeable, there. but yeah. it's it's like quite subtly like he's not doing it like big like he normally does Pee Wee Herman. If, because he knows that the gag is much funnier if Pee Wee's trying really hard to be a good actor <laughs> and just isn't very good at it. 
<laughs> yes. It's good. Yeah. And we see uh, all the characters from the movie that he's made an impression on watching the movie. I really love that. The... He's, yeah, going, he's going around giving everyone snacks, which yeah. is just so lovely and wholesome. And I really Including really like Mickey, that. who's for some reason been driven there in a fucking police vehicle to watch the movie <laughs> and drive him. The one character I was curious who, if they're in that scene, I, I didn't go back and check. If if she is, I'll be so happy. If Large Marge is in that scene, I didn't notice her. She's not drawn. Yeah, I didn't either. And I was. It's a shame if like she's not there somewhere. I feel like that would have been great. Um, but yeah, and then the movie ends with him and Dotty, where he yes, says, "Come on, my, let's go." One of my favorite lines of the movie. Yeah, where he's like, "Let's go," and she's like, "Don't you want to watch the end of the movie?" He goes, "I don't need to watch it. I lived it." <laughs> Boom, credits. <laughs> Obviously, like, so that gag is even funnier when you see the movie they made of his life and it's like yeah. James Brolin and like he's like necking off with like hot blonde Dotty and like fighting ninjas and stuff. And Pee Wee's watching that like, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> Actually, I do think like that's kind of a mission statement in itself for Paul Rubens because like that scene where he's watching the drive in movie version of Pee Wee's life, like just like a very heterosexual, very, like, the gag is, like, it's a Hollywood movie that Hollywood could actually make versus the movie that you've just watched. I I like the fact that it immediately cuts to Pee Wee just laughing, just being like, lol, isn't that funny? And, like, I think that kind of sums up the the heart of this movie of, like, it is just a weird little film, but it's kind of got that wholesome energy to it. It does. I mean, the biggest comparison that a lot of people always make is that it's like a live-action cartoon, and... Yeah, I think that's probably a very apt yeah. uh, way of putting it, especially when, yeah, it's, it has this sort of, like, wholesomeness for kids, but it does have that undercurrent of, like, fairly absurdist and sometimes fairly crude and dark humour to it that adults can really appreciate, like most of the best kids' cartoons do. Yes, agreed. And, yeah, it kind of, yeah, like, it has a big Looney Tunes energy, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Pee Wee Herman is such a larger-than-life character who seemingly has under underlying supernatural abilities. Let's face it; like Pee Wee Herman does not abide by the laws of human physics. He is a yeah. He's as we've said, he's a strange little chaos goblin. <laughs> did you, Did you spot Phil Hartman's cameo? By the way, I did. He's in at the end, isn't Instantly he? Instantly recognizable by the voice, right? Yeah, <laughs> and he plays one of the news reporters at the end who's interviewing Francis. So I think it's pretty obvious what we both think of Pee-wee's big adventure. Terrible trash. Yeah, god awful. Get it in the bin. Paul Rubin should have been more ashamed of this than the other thing. (laughs) 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 I'm being facetious, obviously. No, I I really like this movie. Um, I think it's just it's incredibly fun. It's really like wholesome, and not one that I would watch fairly regularly because I think part of the part of the big thing about it was. I would, I would definitely watch it again, but I think part of it for me was, like, so many of the gags really blindsided me, and I think that's why I found it so funny. So I feel like, I don't know, I'd want it to be fresher fresh every time I watch it, kind of I thing. think it kind of has that element of, like, it's a weird combination of, like, as I say, kind of 50s cartoons. It almost has, like, a bit of, like, French comedy to it. Like, I feel like that's kind of a vibe this movie has. Like, very kind of slapsticky, farsey type stuff. But then it also has like very distinct like kind of Gen X, like kind of like ironic and kind of like a little bit sinister element to the humor. Where like I think because it has all those elements in kind of perfect balance, mm. and I think that's kind of what, what I recall of Big Top Pee Wee. It kind of goes too far in the the kids' direction, whereas I mm. think this one, it's got all those elements kind of working in perfect harmony, probably because of the creative team behind it. 
and it kind of it makes the movie really interesting to watch because like I watched it tonight before we recorded and I was kind of thinking like oh god I've got to sit through this like weird kids movie like like I know it's good and we love Paul Rubens and all this but like yeah, can I really be bothered to pay attention to a kids movie and like it doesn't feel that much like a kids movie when you're watching no, it. Like, a lot of the all, humor there's a lot of different levels of humor to the film and I think that's something that Paul Rubens was very good at with the Pee Wee characters like I say he's kind of very dialed into what kids find funny but also not talking down to them which is something that he talked about a lot in his like why he thinks Pee Wee Herman works is like it doesn't talk down to the kids because ultimately the yeah. character wasn't created for kids originally it was no. like it was originally more of a kind of Gen Xy like parody of like fifties kids shows that then just kind of somehow worked its way back around to being an actual kids show. And it was I highly think, educational as well, from what I've heard as well. Like yeah. every episode had like an educational slant to it. Yeah, it certainly had like a moral um, aspect to it. Like that was something that Paul Rubens was very big on, uh, ironically, given the nature of his scandals, I guess. But, yeah. Um, the um yes yeah, so, like he was you know he wanted pb to be squeaky clean and he wanted it to be this thing of like like the, there is a lesson in this movie as absurd as it is like the the movie is basically about like Wee realizing that he's been kind of a douche to everyone and then but then bringing everyone back together at the end of the film to watch the the movie right like it's kind of yeah you know there is a lesson to this movie and from what i've seen of Wee's playhouse like that's kind of the vibe of that like there's always kind of like a lesson, but it's not hammered home. It's just kind of like, this is what we've learned today. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And obviously you have the, the secret word of the day, which was a big fixture of Pee Wee. Yes, yes. Where they would just scream at the camera. <laughs> <laughs> the word of the day uh, is... No, I really like this movie. I think it's very, very, very funny. I'm glad you mentioned the whole sort of Gen X thing. And like, I feel like it's not only there just because of like the presence of phil hartman as well but like this kind of has a very pre-simpsons kind yes. of humor to it i've like because the, the simpsons would have come along like very shortly after this yeah um but a lot of the humor that this movie has the simpsons was kind of doing it a couple of years after the fact i think and i think that's kind of why it holds up so well is because it was it's it's genuinely you know for such a a silly little kids movie and just a kids in quotation mark there it's actually quite clever and very very funny yeah and yeah i like it a lot i think it's a great little movie i really enjoyed watching it and uh certain like you say certain scenes will stay in my head forever because they're just really really funny so i think we should have a patented rating system for this episode uh, a special one is it rube win or is it going in the rube bin I love it, <laughs> and it's a Rube win, obviously. Yeah, I think this is uh, a big old Rube win. I mean, yeah. if anything of Pee-wee's gets preserved, I think it should be this. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And I would actually be very curious to go back and watch more of the actual show uh, mm. off the back of watching this. I do really want to see the newer movie as well. Big Top yeah. Pee-wee, I might watch that at some point. Well, we'll do it. We'll cover it. Pee Wee, Her- Aiden and Mike versus Pee Wee Herman. We'll just do the rest of his back catalog. <laughs> do we just splice this conversation into that episode? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's Pee Wee's big adventure. Then yeah, um, I think it's so- a big recommend. I think if you're a fan of Tim Burton's good films as well, like you should definitely check it out. So it does have that element of like his style kind of coming to fruition over the course of the movie. I wouldn't put it in like my top five of Burton's movies. No, maybe it's more it's... of a Rubens movie than it is a Burton movie. Yeah, but it's a strong one in Burton's filmography as well, I think. And it is really quite interesting to see the genesis of what he would later turn into. Yeah. 
And by all accounts, uh, uh, Paul Rubens gave him like a pretty, you know, free reign to do pretty much anything, which I think is why you yeah. get those weird nightmare sequences in the middle of this movie. I feel like it's because like Paul Rubens' performance as Pee Wee is so strong that you can just put anything around him and he will just make it work. He will interact with it in some way. Like that well, character that's fits that's any right. world you put him in. I think that is the core of Pee Wee Herman and why it works. Is like because actually. Paul Rubens hosted SNL, weirdly, given the bitterness between him and Lorne Michaels. Um, but he hosted SNL as Pee Wee Herman, not as Paul Rubens. So, like, the premise of the episode is that all the sketches are Pee Wee Herman doing a sketch. And, like, mm. I've seen some... I'm not a big SNL guy, but I saw some of it because I was watching no, it for, um, for research for this. And it, it genuinely works. Just this idea of, like, just put like Pee Wee Herman in any situation and that'll... You know, we can mine something from it. Uh, yeah, I'm keen to see some of that. Actually, I might look put that up after this. Mm. Um, so we've got two more films to cover, Aiden. We do. So I feel like we should uh, get into those. I feel like so, we spent a lot of time uh, on Pee Wee there. We did, we but should. I think I feel like with these next two movies, obviously we're going to talk about them both. But I think the big thing that we are going to talk about them is why we like Paul Rubens in those movies, especially. Yes. I think. Um, so the first of the two movies that we're going to talk about was my choice because the way that this is working uh, for this special is obviously we won't talk about Pee Wee's Big Adventure because it is like the de facto Paul Rubens thing. It is, you know, his Sorry, legacy. I forgot is, to say, um, Pee Wee's Big Adventure is a Rube win. It's a Rube win, and Rube it win. is it's not going in the Rube bin. It's not the Rube bin is currently empty. Yeah. Uh, for now, wink. <laughs> Controversial takes incoming. <laughs> uh no so um we wanted to talk about that movie as it is like yeah it is the quintessential paul rubens thing uh so we then thought well why don't we both pick something else that we both love paul rubens in uh shockingly i'm amazed that i chose something like this who knew that i would ever pick this but i chose 1992's yes i'm, gonna, I'm pretty sure it's 1992 uh Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, not the TV series of the same name, that came many years later. <laughs> about four years later. <laughs> Thank you. Because okay. well, we're not talking about all seven seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Although you would if I let you. Oh, I would talk endlessly. Uh, it's a not a you know, it's a well-known secret that I am a huge devotee of uh, Miss Buffy Summers, and it's my favourite TV show, and I make no bones about that. Um, but the movie is he something... publicly masturbating to it. Well, you know, everyone's got to have a hobby. Um, <laughs> and his, his TV uh, show, Mark's Madhouse, was cancelled shortly after. It, it was. It was just me jerking off at the camera. <laughs> yeah, to be clear, that wasn't a children's show. You no. shouldn't let children watch Mark's Madhouse. No, I think the studio really got the marketing wrong on that one. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think the under fives don't need to see a man inserting a dragon dildo into his anus. <laughs> while singing Yes Sir I Can Boogie <laughs> I don't think that's necessary what, what do you think Mark? Explain yourself I think we should listen to a clip from Buffy the Vampire Slayer personally <laughs> <laughs> oh, God I'll get you Buffy and your little dog too I guess nobody sees in you you don't really think you can stand up to him, do you? Admit it, Buffy. Aren't there times when you just feel less than fresh? You're pathetic. And 
not even fit to die for him. We're immortal, Buffy. You can do anything. Oh, yeah? Clap. So, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a 1992 American horror comedy movie written by another scandalous figure within Hollywood. A certain... He actually done the crimes. He, he did. Mr. Joss Whedon, who is a, a bad man, to say the least. But he's he's a he's a best naughty. He is a bad man, but he do a right and good. I think is well. Well, he sometimes do a right and good. In some instances, well, he do the right and good. Well. Anyway, Buffy the Vampire Slayer <laughs> tells the story of Buffy Summers, who is a vacuous cheerleader who lives in Los Angeles, and uh, one day she is approached by Donald Sutherland in one of his more <laughs> sinister roles. We'll put it that way. Uh, he just starts following this young girl around town and basically reveals to her that she is the chosen one. She is the, the she is the slayer. She slays vampires. She is destined to do so because she had a hairy mole just above her tit and she's part of a legacy, apparently. And so nice. eventually she agrees to try and fight vampires and accepts her destiny. Uh, all the while she's dealing with Lothos and his uh, right-hand man, Amelin, who is played by the late, great Paul Rubens. And Buffy basically must accept her destiny, defeat Lothos, and get off with the alcoholic dude who she sort of chirps as throughout the movie. That's the that's the plot. He was called Pike. Pike, yes. His name is Pike. Which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're not going to go too far down the rabbit hole of what this I simply is. won't let him listen. No. I can see him. He's He craves Buffy chat. <laughs> We won't go down the rabbit hole of what this uh, movie eventually spawned, but like I think it is safe to say that there's a lot of the elements of what the show would be. If you're not, if you're not aware, there was a TV show based on this movie. Yeah, based on this movie that really nobody saw. You know. <laughs> yeah, nobody saw the TV show. Everybody saw this movie. Yeah. So the movie was a modest hit, I believe. Like it wasn't, you know, earth shattering. It was a seven million budget and made sixteen point six at the box office. So you know, it wasn't a hit, really. Um, no. Got a bit of a cult status, but didn't really take off anywhere. Um, but you know, eventually, Joss Whedon got the chance to adapt it into a TV series, and the rest is history. Um, did you know this movie was produced by Dolly Parton? I did know that. Yes, because she's also instrumental in what followed but i just like that fact so much i like the fact that dolly parton was just like buffy the vampire slayer yeah that sounds great let's <laughs> let's throw money at that i um, mean she also had a, a massive hand in the covid vaccine she did she also uh, donates books and stuff as well doesn't she to impoverished areas she, dolly parton good soul good soul we like dolly and a cracking pair of tails. <laughs> I mean, it goes without saying. You didn't have to say that. We all know that Dolly's Norks are stratospherically legendary. I didn't have to, but I did anyway. So, Buffy. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so the this movie, Aiden, what are your thoughts on it? Because obviously people know of my my you know affection for Buffy the Vampire Slayer as a whole, but what do you think? Of- yeah, and the fact that as a Buffy fan, you must absolutely adore this film. So... I have seen this movie on a few occasions. Um, not uh, like super frequently, like fairly spaced out. I feel like it was on um, more for quite a bit in my youth. The first time I ever saw it, it was on film for. I remember that quite vividly yeah. because I didn't know that there was a Buffy film. I would I was watching the series at the time, did not know there was a film. So you could imagine young me being very confused by this film. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've I've always so I watched the show back in the day as well. I'm not as avid a, a fan as yourself. Um, yeah, it's yeah, you know, I like it well enough. It's just not one of those things that was, um, you know, like a big fandom thing for me. Yeah, um, I prefer Charmed. Which um, do you know what based? <laughs> <laughs> based base take. Um, uh, I also Aiden enjoy Charmed, Charmed for vastly different reasons. Yeah, so this is going to be the last episode of Kino Inferno, and we're going to move on to do um, our Charmed podcast, which is going to be called Semi-Charmed Life. <laughs> yeah? You like that? <laughs> the problem is, that is something we discussed. That, that, that's a prior conversation. You like that, though, Mark? I do You like, like that, that, Mark? I do like that. We can use the Third Eye Blind song as a, as we a can. theme tune. It's been, it's been a good run, that. listeners. I hope you'll join us for Semi-Charmed Life. Well, we talk about the show Charmed, episode by episode. <laughs> There's a lot Give of that in-depth show. thoughts. There's a lot of that. There's show. too much of that there show. Is. They've even rebooted it, so we'd be we'd, we'd have episodes for days. We would, quite literally. Um, but there's probably comics as well. There's probably spin-off there's comics. All kinds of, there's all kinds of nonsense for that, yeah. Um, there's all kinds of nonsense. I'm actually really... Do you know what? Fuck this off. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's do the Charmed thing. <laughs> No, no, no. We won't resort to semi-charmed life just yet. Um, what were we talking about? Oh, you were asking me what I thought of uh, Buffy the Vampire's Lair. So, um, I kind of like this movie. I always have. It's one of those things that I used to say to wind up my nerd friends that this was better than the TV show. Um, I don't actually necessarily believe that. Um, I just say it to annoy people because that's the kind of Joker-esque troll I am. Um, we were kind of discussing this last night Um I think there are aspects of this movie that um, I'm trying to think now. I might have seen this movie before I saw the TV show. You know, it was. It's not the way people of our generation generally do. No, it was definitely the other way around for me. I got into Buffy the show around the time the last season was airing, and then went back and sort of did it that way. Um, so that would have been around 2001, yeah, I, 2002. That's also how I watched the show, is I watched the last season first and then went yeah. back to watch the rest of it. But I'd already seen this movie by that point. So I feel like... I was kind of saying to you as a joke last, last night, like, in a way, this is like kind of what I think of when I think of Buffy, as sacrilegiously as, as that is. Um, and I acknowledge the greatness of the TV show. I'm not, this, I'm not trying to start beef in the comments. I'm just saying that, like, when I think of Buffy, I go to Kirsty Swanson, not Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah. As controversial as take which as that is, is completely valid. I, I, yeah, it's completely valid. Yeah, and I'm not even saying one is better than the other. Although I kind of like Kirsty Swanson and Buffy more, but that's another story for another day, listeners. Um, you, you know my thoughts. She's good. She's no SMG. You know. I mean, they're kind of the thing is they're functionally different characters. The, yeah, I mean, we're not going to get too. Far no, down no, they, the they are like the belief. the version of Buffy that is in this movie is not the the Buffy that is in the TV series because the TV series does treat this movie as canon, but also does not treat it as canon. So the version of yes Buffy that is at the end of this movie is kind of what Sarah Michelle Gellar's version of the character is. And I, I'm going to shock you, Mark. I have read the the Buffy the Vampire Slayer comic book, Buffy the Vampire Slayer colon Origin. Yes, which, which is. is the reworking of Joss Whedon's original script for this film, um, it's not very good. No, I mean, to be fair, I think, like, I mean, I think this movie, in a sense... It's not very good. This movie, let me just put my thoughts on it. This movie is not very good. Mark, it's really, it's really bad. However, I really... The, the origin the origin comic book is worse than this movie. So. I, I've never read it, if I'm honest. That's, you know... 
Well, basically, what I, what I'd say, Mark, is um, if I was going to pitch the origin comic book to you, um, it's like this: imagine this movie if it wasn't in any way fun to watch. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I've glanced through the original script for this movie, and it is very different. It takes itself a lot more seriously, and I do think that is a detriment because even though I think this movie is, it's kind of naff. Let's face it, this movie is kind of naff. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a cheesy bit of. But exactly, it is so much fun and so yeah. like quotable and funny, and I think like that's the true strength of this movie. Like, we're not going to go too far into it because like these, these last two movies we're going to talk I about, do, we're not going to go nearly as deep. I do also want to flag something up when we're talking about this movie because this is something that Joss Whedon admits to, unlike his many many crimes. <laughs> is this movie is <laughs> very good, very good. This movie is very clearly influenced by a film called Night of the Comet. Yes. From, I think, around 1988, which I have on Blu-ray, listeners. And that film is interesting, mm. especially when you watch it through the lens of um, like being an influence on, on this film. Yeah. It's much more an influence on this film than it is on the, the TV show, yeah. I'll say that. But the character of Buffy, like, there's even a point where the main character, who is pretty much the origin of Buffy, right... She she's on the phone talking about her friend Buffy. Yeah. So even the name Buffy probably comes from that movie. Yeah. Um, but like that's a movie. It's like a post-apocalyptic alien invasion thing, where like the only people left in this small town after this horrible event occurs are like these dumb valley girls, basically. And that movie, like this movie, is very tonally similar to that movie. That movie is very kind of. It's better. It's a better. Film. Yeah. Night of the Comet is it, a, is a is a great time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and no, I genuinely we should do Night of the Comet. We, we should, we should. I've not seen that for a, a while. A treat. Neither have I, but it's a treat. Um, and this, I like bearing all that in mind, like all that to say, like that movie does this premise, but does it seriously in the sense that like the characters are actually characters and they do develop in a way that like I don't think the characters in this movie do. However, I also think the Joss Whedon script, what I know of it anyway, and from reading the Origin comic book, like. It wouldn't have worked either. No. So this is one of those weird movies where, like, I think at some point they clearly went, let's just take all the melodrama out of this and just make a cheesy film about a cheerleader who fights vampires. And that's what we've got. And, and that's what as that, it perfect it's perfectly fine. Yeah. Like it's it's it is what it says on the tin. It is. A cheerleader fights vampires yeah and it's still got some it still retains some of the stuff from the original script like some of whedon's humor is still in it um but i think the truly funny stuff is clearly what was added in after the fact like yes yeah there's and the, the cast are clearly having fun with this movie yeah exactly because well. i mean i think hillary swank is having a great time with this david arquette yes. is having a great time with this Donald I mean, I like Kirsty Swanson. Swanson is also, I think, really good in this. Genuinely, she get, yeah, she gets uh, she gets the most to do. She actually gets like the sort of dramatic moments and the comedic moments. I think uh, the the discussion between her and Donald Sutherland about her menstrual cramps, I think, is is quite amusing. It's hilarious, <laughs> and I think Donald Sutherland's funny in this as well. He I is, know he that is. Joss Whedon had big beef with Danny Sutherland. But that's uh... yes, they they did not. All see... right, let's get into it. I'm going to get into this right now. My, I, Joss Whedon, yeah. <laughs> I just want to pour out a big bowl of fuck you for him. Because this motherfucker, every time a script of his gets turned into a not very good movie, it's the same shit. They did this with Alien Resurrection. It's the same shit where he's like, oh, I wrote a really good script for them. The studio mangled it. It's like, mate, I don't think you did. Like, genuinely, I don't think you did. I've read your original script for Alien Resurrection. It's not good. No, it's not even that different. It's not even that different to what the film is. It's just like, if anything, I mean, I kind of think Alien Resurrection is like an interesting movie, but like that's um, 
not a good film by any no, sense of the imagination, no. but an interesting um, mistake. <laughs> I would rather watch it over Alien Three personally because I think Alien Three is quite boring yeah. for a lot of its runtime. We're on a we're on a bit of a track here, but Alien Three is not good. I'm sorry, no. David Fincher nerds, it's, it's bad. Um, where were we? Yes, yeah, so yes, yeah, so I was thinking about Joss Whedon. So one of his big beefs with this movie is they cut a lot of his jokes out, um, which I do think you can see in the final product once you kind of. Obviously, now we're very familiar with Joss Whedon's style, um, and the humor is like not really that Whedon-y. There's none of that kind of like clever, 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 clever dialogue, you know. Yeah, it's there's like, not as many pop culture references, and like no. there's some snark, but not as much as what the show would eventually have. Yeah, and I think that kind of allows this movie to have a certain charm. Um, like it feels fairly earnest. Like it doesn't feel too like as earnest as a film. The premise of which is how much cheerleader fights vampires can ever really get but like yeah and like i think that that works in his favor and oh i mean also the other big beef he has with this movie joss whedon is um donald sutherland apparently um decided to go off script with some of his dialogue which is something that i'm kind of like i'm gonna put a question mark next to that because having what knowing that and having watched the movie yesterday i was like at what point was donnie sutherland going off script i have because, to like, agree with that because the dialogue it doesn't seem like he's coming out with anything what because joss whedon says like Ah, oh, he ruined like scenes and stuff because like now the movie doesn't make any sense because of what he says, and it's like I don't think it's fine. Like there's never he has a... most of the exposition. Yeah, there's never a point where his character Merrick says anything that doesn't sync up with what the other characters say in response to him. Yeah, everything. So it's all like, the okay, he might works. have been, he might have improved his dialogue a bit or edited it or whatever, but like yeah, not to the film's detriment as far as I could tell. Because you don't know what was cut out, but like no, but. I feel like his character given is that, like, consistent. To, and given like like to to kind of round this back to the focus of this episode, like given that Paul Rubens is just kind of doing whatever in this movie, <laughs> if you're kind of level that accusation at anyone, I think you have to level it at Big Paul. Oh yeah, he's he, definitely. I feel like Paul Rubens is in a different movie to everybody else. <laughs> like, yeah. He's in the best possible movie. I feel like Donald Sutherland and Kirsty uh, Swanson try to play it. So they they get the comedy elements of it, but they try to play yeah. it a little bit more straight. Rubens does not do that one bit, so it's worth. Well, him and Rutger Howard are not in the same movie as everyone. No, else. they're having their I mean, own gay old vampire. They're time. also they're also in different movies to one another, which is um, so Paul Rubens plays Amelin in this movie, who is Rutger Hauer's um, sort of lackey, and yeah. from the first, he's like moment, the, yeah, the hen- he's he's like the henchman to Rutger. Yeah, he's like, like yeah, he's like his, his yeah. head follower essentially. Um, and from the first time you see Amelin in this movie, it's just genius because he he's on the he's sitting atop a merry-go-round horse that is just spinning around <laughs> in a, an empty uh, like play park at night, and that's just yeah, that's just fabulous if you ask me <laughs> and from there say, he just he looks exactly like his mugshot he like does yeah so it's the scraggly facial hair one thing that we do have to quickly mention as well is like so after all the scandals happened with paul rubens um this was his first like major role in a movie because he was in batman returns as well which came out the same year but he's only in yeah. that movie for like the first couple of minutes it's a very small role it was nightmare before christmas before or after this i think it was after i think he's Got a voice role in that. I th- I'm pretty certain that Nightmare Before Christmas was like 1994, something like that. 
And if people are wondering where he is in that movie, he's one of uh, Oogie Boogie's henchmen. He is, him yeah. Catherine O'Hara um, and Danny Elfman can be heard singing uh, Kidnap Mr. Sandy yes. Cars. Uh, and once you know that the, the little fella is Paul Rubens, you cannot unhear it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but where was I going with this? Sorry, you were saying the scandals. Oh, yeah. So this was his first major movie. And yeah, so Paul Rubens actually insisted on uh, his character looking as much like his mugshot from when he got arrested as possible, which is a Chad move, I feel. Yeah. Absolute Chad move. And in retrospect, I read a little interview of him where he said that he loves this movie because he feels he's never looked cooler than <laughs> than like this is the coolest he's ever looked in any movie and well, i he think he kind of looks badass he's in this great. movie like when he, he's cutting he's cutting around in his leather jacket and stuff and his like long wavy hair and, and like his goatees it's just great it's so like, great. one of his main motivations in the film is that one of the human kids fucks up his jacket <laughs> oh man it's just it's so great and like i love his like pseudo homo relationship he has with rutger Hauer's character like there he's always just like pining over him and stuff it's great yeah uh, i mean this is who directed this picture uh so this was directed by uh fran rubel kuzu kazu i probably just butchered oh, that uh, no no one yeah um um <laughs> all i know about um fran is that she made a movie called tokyo <laughs> pop uh which did really well at the Cannes film festival apparently then did this movie and then from what i gather the only other major thing that she did was she was like an executive producer on the show so okay yeah had a big involvement in the tv show as well so that she was kept around for that and clearly i mean joss whedon must have fought highly of her because he really hates this movie but well executive producer though that could be a vanity title it seems like she was involved with it throughout its entire run as well so okay yeah um so definitely had some involvement in that um but Paul Rubens, I feel like we've we've said our thoughts on this movie. Really, we don't just go too in depth on like the plot and such. Yeah, because like to be clear, this movie is just like it, it, it's there's not much to it. No, it is just girl finds out she's Slayer, starts training to be Slayer, slays vampires. Like that's that's the movie. Yeah, um, and I think you know, I would say like for for what it is, like it's not particularly like amazingly directed but like like we said the performances are all quite fun yeah it's very campy um, and the, i think the, the action's like passable it's it's fine yeah and i think it's, like the, the, yeah. the sort of the main like dramatic heft of it is it's about you know a once vacuous young woman who once finding out about vampires starts to kind of realize just how vacuous everything around her is and yeah you you could read you could like, read a lot of metaphor think, into you know, that but you know the show does that better um yeah, well, the show goes more in depth. Exactly. This movie exactly. is kind of exactly. going for fun and trolling. Exactly. I mean, this movie ends with Buffy riding off on a motorcycle with her scruffy ass <laughs> boyfriend. Like, you know, this is this is fantasy, yeah. you know. Um, but I like this movie a lot because of how fucking funny it is, and Paul Rubens is one of the main reasons why it's so funny. Yeah, to me, he's the main. I mean, like the thing that people will know this movie for if they haven't seen it is Paul Rubens' amazing death scene it's at the end of the film. Just incredible, Where- isn't it? Buffy stakes him and he takes like a full two minutes to actually die. And he's just going, ah! Ooh. <laughs> Which I'm convinced I mean, Family Guy ripped off. Like, yeah, it must yeah. be from I feel movie. like that's 
It must have been an improv. It has to be. But yeah, it, it's a, it's a hilarious death scene. And like, I, I'd forgotten or I just had never seen the fact that like midway through the credits, it cuts back to him still dying. <laughs> I love, I, but, um, I, the other things I love about that scene as well is that when they first go into the basement area where Buffy kills him, Ruka Howard's just playing the violin there for no reason. There's no reason no why he should be whatsoever. doing that. And he just lets Amelie well, die. I, I, I will tell you what's going on with Paul Rubens and Rutger Hauer in this movie is that the director doesn't have the nards to tell them to stop doing whatever the fuck <laughs> it is they're doing. Because there's scenes in this where like no one told them to do this. That's just something they decided to do. Like, there's a bit like like when um, Rutger Hauer's like, lying in his coffin or whatever and he extends his hand out to Paul Rubens and Paul Rubens goes in to kiss it and he just takes it away like, ooh. And then they both just have a little moment of like, ah. It's like... No one directed that. They're just messing around on set. And I mean, it's just somehow ended up in the, the film. best example of that is the death scene where he's going ah, oh, and then stops and just shoots Kirsty Swanson this look, <laughs> <laughs> this look of is this yeah. flying? Is this okay? <laughs> he straight up gives her a cheeky little glance <laughs> and then falls to the floor and then starts kicking the wall. <laughs> Before falling down dead, it is. And I think the funniest beautiful. thing about that scene is Kirsty Swanson like does not react. She's a pro. She's a pro. Yeah. It's a shame she's also a pro Trump supporter. Yeah, yeah. She's okay, yeah. yeah. We less effusive in my praise towards Kirsty Swanson. Yeah, <laughs> like don't get me wrong, I love her in this movie, but Kirsty, sort your shit out. Uh, stop being a messy bitch. Yeah, come on now. Um, come on, behave. Yeah, just come on. Really, it's been behave. It's been, it's been four or five years, Kirsty. Fucking let it rest, yeah. Do you reckon she stormed the Capitol? No, we can't say that. (laughs) Talk about people who didn't have a career anymore. Yeah, that's very true, actually. What happened to Kirsty Swanson? Um, She she never got a call, as far as we know, flicking her bean in a public uh, (laughs) place. Maybe that's what she was doing when she was definitely storming the Capitol. (laughs) Just uh, fudding herself up. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> we said some deplorable things on this episode that's supposedly a memorial to a beloved actor. <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, yeah, I feel like that's the Kino Inferno way. I mean, like we, we love Paul Rubens, we really do. And we love him in this we movie do. as well, I think. Um I mean, like I said, he's he's the main highlight of this movie. Uh, he really is. Like and as much as I every scene he's in is gold. Yeah, as much as I do enjoy this movie, like it's all about him. I think, yeah, Kirstie Swanson's good in it. Donald Sutherland's good in it. I really like he- uh, Hilary Swank and uh, David Arquette in it. Gotta shout out one other MVP of this movie as well, though, um, which is gotta be oh. Stephen Root, who most people will know from like, yes. Office Space. He plays yes. the principal in this movie, and he is fucking hilarious in this film. He is. There's, he is. there's so many great bits, like when he talks about his drug experiences, going to a Doobie Brothers concert and stuff, which is highly inappropriate at school saying. Uh, but for me, it's at the end of the movie where all the vampires are dead in the gym, and he's just going around with detention slips and like yeah. throwing them at their corpses. I think that's so great. Um, that's what I mean. I almost think it's like for my for my personal thoughts on Buffy as a franchise. Like, I almost think it's a shame that they abandoned the kind of cheesy comedy of this movie overall. Like, I almost wonder what the show might have been like if this movie had been more successful. Like, if it had been if it would have been more of a, a comedy. Because I mean, the show is funny, but like, it's not. Um, it tends more towards fantasy. Yeah, drama, the I, guess, so. I would agree. Yeah, the the movie 
is more of just an out and out sort of broad comedy i would say whereas the tv series does have a lot of humor to it but yeah it is more focused on like the supernatural drama elements and you know much more heavy on like you know themes and metaphors and stuff which is you know all good shit don't get me wrong but so some episodes of the show do try to go to the sort of campier nature that this movie has but it never quite goes all out on it i think it always say, like to, to my mind the episodes that go a little campier in the show don't work very well no i think i mean for me personally you know we're not we're not we simply do not have time for me to go into my (laughs) my uh ramblings about how great the show is but for me the best stuff in the show is when it does take itself seriously like that's all the good shit for me um yeah also if anyone's listening who's a big buffy fan i really hate once more with feeling it's okay Uh, so moving on where do you think this movie (laughs) it's okay to be wrong I just think that episode sucks. Um, I, I think it's and also, fantastic. It led towards it led uh, Whedon in the direction of Doctor Horrible's sing along blog, which is one of the most insufferable pieces of media ever put to screen. But once more, feeling is like really good though. Like it's really good. No, it's bad. No, it's Sorry. it's really good. Sorry, it's bad. It's it's not though. It's bad. It's not. It's one of the worst episodes. What were you saying anyway? <laughs> it's it's really not. <laughs> My favourite episode is the one where beer turns everyone into like <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> that one's really good, because it's like a charmed episode. That episode is the Halloween resurrection of the Buffy series, that's what it is. But like, I like it because it's like a charmed episode, it's just it, stupid. Did you, did you know the reason why that episode was written? Yeah, because it was like sponsored by the anti-alcohol lobby, <laughs> yeah. right? the anti-teenage drink. Yeah, they, they were like, we need a bit more extra budget money for this season, so they thought they'd just fleece the Christians for it. Which, you know what, I admire it. And Beer Bad is the worst episode, but it's so much fun. I really enjoy that episode. I don't even think it's the worst episode. I think it's good. Uh, I think it's top ten. <laughs> you would say that. <laughs> so what were you saying beforehand? <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah, no, I think the thing with this movie that doesn't quite work is like, it's... this. The script isn't as tight as it could be. Mm. Um, there's certain elements, like, as fun as Rutger Hauer is in this movie, I think... We were saying this, like, I think it'd be stronger if uh, Amelin, the Paul Rubens character, was the main villain. And Lothos was kind of like, you know, the MacGuffin thing of, oh, we've got to stop the vampires from rising their master from the grave. Because then I think the element of the vampires being kind of silly would work as well, where it's like, oh, this isn't them at their full power. They've yeah. got this Dracula figure that they're trying to awaken, and they need him because these guys are kind of schlubs, right? Yeah. Like, I think that would be, that would make more sense. Mm-hmm. I like Rutger Hauer in the movie. But also, like, you know, more Amelin, more Paul Rubens, Ham would probably rise this movie up a star in most people's books, I think. Yeah, well, to borrow uh, one of your sort of key phrases, like, Lofos is kind of a non-entity in this movie for the most part. Like, Amelin Amelin does way more in this movie and is just a better screen presence. And it's just great to see Paul Rubens just, like, popping up behind people and just just hamming it up to fuck. Like, it's great. Um, I think it's just that thing of like they they don't know what they've got with Paul Rubens in this movie, mm. and like maybe part of that is like because it is post scandal, so they're maybe downplaying his involvement a little bit. But like they've they've got this like crazy cartoon character that they can deploy at will, and they just kind of don't. Yeah. And like if we're looking at this as a Paul Rubens movie, like every scene he's in is gold. Yeah. But this is not enough scenes of him. Yeah, he should have been in the movie more. And then like any scenes between him and Kirsty Swanson are just great as well. Yeah. And it's just a shame that Rutger Howe always kind of undercuts those, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. And like, Rutger Howe's great. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he, he just <laughs> he just sort of smoulders a bit and just calls Buffy a bitch a lot. That's kind of all he really does. And he has a yeah, sword. He was on 
he was on some Freddy Krueger stuff where he's like, "Listen, you bitch." Yeah, he's a he's not a very nice man, is uh, is Lofos. You dumb slag. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you dopey cunt. <laughs> no, none of that was in the movie, apart from the bitch line. Um. So what are we saying? Is this a Rube win or a Rube? Is it going in the Rube bin? Uh, I I think it's a Rube win personally. I've always enjoyed this movie, and I've always felt like. Because a lot of a lot of Buffy fans don't get like don't like it, um, they sort of write it off because it is so different to the show. But that is kind of why I like it as much as I do. I think it's incredibly camp. Um, the last mm-hmm. time I saw it before I watched it yesterday for this um, was when me and my friend Amy, who I did Barbenheimer with, which is you know linking us back to last time, uh, we went to a anniversary screening of it at my local Odeon. And uh, there wasn't many people in there, shockingly. Um, it was just you two. Uh, there was a couple of other people, and, and me and Amy. And, felt... and this bloke with like really long hair and a scraggly beard, who was just hunched <laughs> over the whole time. I mean, we, we felt a little bit bad in a way because uh, the the other people in the cinema were clearly trying to watch the movie, and we were just drinking gin and just giggling the entire way through the film. And it was it was fantastic. It's my favorite yeah, experience of seeing this. I, I would I would echo your thoughts. I think in reality, it's going in the root bin, but yeah. As a movie to watch with friends and a few drinks and some pizza or whatever, like it's a beer and pizza movie. It yeah. works on that level. Yeah, and it's ninety minutes long as well. It's not even it's like barely ninety minutes. It it's is, like yeah. Like it's a very very breezy film and just yeah breezy. So like, funny. I I find it hard to begrudge anything that's under ninety minutes long. To be honest, yeah, I like, I agree actually. Like this movie, you've not wasted by. that much of my time. Yeah, this movie flies by, and I think like. All the performances in it are great. Like uh, Luke Perry as Pike, we haven't really talked about, but I think his performance is pretty of what you know this what? movie needs. Uh, uh, Luke Perry again, R.I.P. Yes, yeah, passed away not too long ago, didn't he? Um, mm. uh, Joss Whedon always spoke very highly of him, apparently. Oh, it's probably a nonce case. That's disrespectful that's, to a dead man's wow, okay. Um, but yeah, no, everyone's good. I love David Arquette in this movie as well. I think he's uh, he's very very R.I.P. No, R.I.P. Well, Dewey though. Dewey, yeah, Dewey Never did die though. Spoilers. Never forget. Never forget Dewey. Yeah. I always remember Dewey. I'll stop playing the theme music now. Um. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so. Running gag. The worst running gag we've ever done. I think it might be the best. So yeah, I, I like this movie well enough. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what? The ideal scenario, I said beer and pizza, but I think the ideal scenario to watch this movie is being quite hungover. Yeah. Because it's the kind of movie where you can put it on. It's not too loud. No. It's just going to be on. And you can sort of dip in and out and stop paying attention anytime Paul Rubens is on screen. And then just kind of get back into it. And, like, you know, it's. Uh, you can watch it. It's that kind of movie where it's like, it's good to have on. Yeah. It's just, know? it's enjoyable it's not... fluff, really, isn't it? You know? Yeah. It is very fluffy. Any movie that has a, a training montage to defeat vampires set to the, the vinyls is just all good by me, you know. Big yes, big fan of this I movie. Agree. Yeah, that's a fun sequence. It is a very fun sequence. Um so is that the final word on Buffy the Vampire Slayer that we'll ever say on this podcast? What do you think, Aiden? The closing window of Mark wanting to talk about Buffy. I'm closing it. I'm, closing I'm having an aneurysm that you can't not let me <laughs> It's like if I tell you to, I mean, just, to not talk about Doctor Who, it's the same thing. I barely talk about Doctor Who on this podcast. No, you just I'm do at restrained. me constantly. <laughs> I'm very restrained. Um, although, watch this space. <laughs> or should I say, watch this time and space. 
Cuts to the mystery man clip. Why you guys always ditching me? It hurts my feelings. I'm a superhero too. I have powers. Really? Oh, like what? Ooh, so glad you asked. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Well, it all started when I was just 13 years of age. One day, while walking with some friends, I accidentally cut the cheese. Well, in my adolescent awkwardness, I blamed it on an old gypsy woman who happened to be passing by. Big mistake! The gypsy woman placed a curse upon my head. Because I'd smelt it, she decreed I would forevermore be he who dealt it! So, 1999's Mystery Men, a timeless classic directed by... Uh, some guy called Kenka Usher, who may or may not be Tim Burton. We'll get there. Um, so this is a superhero uh, spoof from the late 90s, uh, loosely based on a Dark Horse comic book, which no one on God's Earth has ever read, called Flaming Carrot. I did read about that. No idea what the fuck that is, but sure. The Flaming Carrot does not appear in this film. But some of the characters from the movie are derived from that comic book, as, as indeed is the team name Mystery Men. So, what the movie is about. The film takes place in Champion City, which is a kind of Joel Schumacher-esque, retro-futuristic, Blade Runner, but gayer kind of vibe. Champion City has a superhero by the name of Captain Amazing, played by Greg Kinnear, who is basically keeping everything super safe, and there's no need for our, our heroes to really be on the scene. We're introduced to a trio of superheroes, uh, Ben Stiller's Mr. Furious, William H. Macy's The Shoveler, um, and the frankly baffling character played by Hank Azaria, the Blue Raja, who are a trio of uh, hapless superheroes. We're introduced to them saving the day at uh, an old folks' home, saving the day in the loosest possible sense. They get their asses handed to them until uh, Captain Amazing shows up. Um, but yeah, so the long short of it is this Captain Amazing is losing his sponsorship deals uh, which is very important to him because superheroing is a lucrative business apparently um, because all the, he's basically too good at his job and he's put away all the, all the dangerous villains however Jeffrey Rush's Casanova Frankenstein is still alive <laughs> incredible character, incredible name um, he is uh, still alive, he's in a mental institution an Arkham Asylum type place uh, Captain Amazing uses his pull at the uh, mental institution to get Casanova Frankenstein released so that he can get some good publicity by battling with him, essentially. Along the way, our hapless trio are contemplating what to do with their superhero careers. And uh, God, this movie's kind of more convoluted than you think it is until you're trying to, uh, <laughs> until you're trying to assess yeah, it. There's, there's more of a plot to this than what you would assume. Um. Yeah, so our main characters, uh, they could basically they discover that Captain Amazing has been taken prisoner by um, Casanova Frankenstein and his uh, legion of disco boys. Great name. And, um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot going on in this movie. Uh, the long and short of it is this. They attempt to rescue him, they fail. They decide to recruit some other heroes uh, in the form of Janine Garofalo's bowler, uh, Kel Mitchell's invisible boy, who can only turn invisible when no one's looking at him, um, that's the that's the big joke there, and of course Paul Rubens, the one and only, as the Spleen, a character who. Um, how would you describe the Spleen's power set? Like? Um, he can knock people out 
from a distance with his farts. Yes, and the clip that we're definitely going to use, because I feel like we've been using Paul Rubens' clips for this whole oh, thing. Yeah. You're definitely using the scene, the Spleen's introductory scene as the, as the clip for this film. I, where he describes the origins of his powers. I've also got to quickly just say, would you've mentioned that introductory scene. Much like yeah. how in Buffy, his first entrance is him coming in on that merry-go-round horse, which is brilliant and I love it. His entrance in this movie fucking floored me because not only does he just strut into this movie, he's strutting into this movie to Planet Claire by the B-52s, which I was like, yes. sold, love it, this is great. Fantastic, 10 out of 10. Like, that, that happened. And then, yeah, he has the incredible speech about um, how he gained his powers. Uh, he was hanging out with his buddies, and he accidentally let a fart off. And in his adolescent awkwardness, blamed... I mean, we played the yeah. clip, right? But he, he blamed it on a passing gypsy woman who decreed that because he was the one who smelt it, he should forevermore be he who dealt it. <laughs> Which and, is a and the he became the spleen. Brilliant origin story, absolutely insane. It really is. <laughs> um, and Paul Rubens delivers it like I mean, you talk about him being in a different movie to everyone else in Buffy. I don't know what film he strolled out of in this one because <laughs> he's like this fucking greasy like golem creature in this movie. Everyone else is playing it like super deadpan, and he's just like hamming it up to the nines. And it's wonderful. He is the. the it's he, here's this movie's secret weapon, I think. Like, because this is a movie full yes. of good performances. Like, let's also, yeah. you know, not oh, understand. We should that. also say just to round off the uh, the summary before we get too into uh, the spleen. Uh, they are also joined by Wes Studi's terribly mysterious The Sphinx, yep. who guides them into being a more effective team. The long and short of it is, they eventually try to rescue Captain Amazing. They break into Casanova Frankenstein's house. Uh, in the process of trying to rescue him, they kill him by mistake. Um, at which point they realise Casanova Frankenstein's got a secret weapon that he's going to turn on Champion City at midnight, and they are the only heroes left in town. Uh, that pretty much sums up the movie, right? I mean, we'll get into yeah, the and also like the other thing as well. Like, if you haven't seen this movie, like watch it. Like watch this, watch Pee Wee's Big Adventure, watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like watch well, these movies. This is the thing, Mark. So you haven't seen this movie? No, before, I hadn't. And you know, you know that it's a big childhood favourite of mine. Um, so, in true Kino Inferno fashion, you've not really told me what your thoughts are. I think I have an inkling of what they are, <laughs> but why don't you uh, tell the folks at home what you thought of 1999's Mystery Men? For the King most part, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was... Uh, I, there were certain bits that had me like genuinely laughing out loud, but I'd say it's a, it's a very amusing movie. It had me grinning through a lot of it. I just thought it was it was really silly and funny. Really, kind of ahead of its time as well, in terms of the way it like sort of spoofs the superhero stuff. Like, immediately thought of things like the boys, which, like, mm. um, well, we were saying this right. Captain Amazing is kind of like a PG thirteen. Yeah, and Homeland. I'm not the biggest fan of the boys personally. I didn't even finish the first series, I don't think, and I've been meaning to go back to it because everyone and their mothers tells me how brilliant it is, and I've, I've probably... I I like the show, but I all I say about that is I think it needs to end in the next two seasons. Mm. It's getting to the point where they need to start wrapping up. I, I, I all I'll say is like I do want to try and give it another shot, but I when it comes to like sort of edgy superhero shows at the minute, I'm kind of more camp invincible. If I'm honest, I, I was more into that. Um, yeah, I liked Invincible, but uh, Mystery Men walked, so both of those could run quite frankly. Definitely, and <laughs> I, I'll put it this way: I've not enjoyed a superhero movie as much as I did this one for quite some time now as well. I'll put it that way. Um, this is better than any Marvel movie. And I'm saying that with my whole chest. This film is better than any MCU film. Fact. 
I don't know if I would agree with you, but for the sake of pissing off the MCU boys, name one that's name one that's better. Uh, Thor Ragnarok. Name one that's better. Incorrect. That's Guardians of the Galaxy. Incorrect. That's better. Uh, Infinity War. It's still better. Mm. Uh, Put it this Thor way: Thor Two, the if Dark we, listen, <laughs> Mark, if we were sat on the sofa at yours currently, if we were sat on the sofa currently, not recording the pods, holding up, hands, yeah, and you know, maybe holding hands and having a little kiss. <laughs> And maybe we were a little the worse for wear. We'd had a few drinks and maybe some herbal refreshments. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, look, we've got time to watch exactly one movie. And the only options are Thor Ragnarok or Mystery Men. Which would you choose in your, like, in your heart of hearts? You know the answer to that, Aiden. It's Mystery Men. <laughs> <laughs> like, of course it is. Well, I'm glad... I'm glad to know that you didn't hate it, because otherwise we'll have, we'll have words. That was lingering in the back of my head. Part of me was, I was like, if I genuinely <laughs> dislike this movie, Aiden's going to be pissed. Like, he's going to be so upset. Um, but no, I, I, I for the most part, enjoyed part. it. I'll replace I've got some problems with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not a perfect No, uh, it's a bit, I think it's a bit long. And I know I say that about every fucking movie, but this movie is like... It is shockingly too Yeah, and it really doesn't need to be, because I think the a yes. breezier pace would elevate it even more i think because the humor is quite you know thick and fast and i think it... yeah the thing that surprised me on this watch because i haven't seen it for a while i would seen it a lot as a kid um the thing that surprised me on this watch is i always remember like captain amazing's death being at like the end of the first act right okay i was like no that's like quite near the end of the film it's actually. like sort of start of the third act really isn't it it's because they it's when they go to yeah, yeah. casanova frankenstein's um layer isn't it because that's the thing whenever i pitch this movie to people who haven't seen it i'm always like and the gag is they kill superman by accident and like but that's kind of like a, that's like way into the movie. Like I always think, like that's kind of the premise almost. <laughs> but that maybe kind of talks to that kind of speaks to like there are some pacing issues in this movie. Um, and I think because I've actually seen all the deleted scenes as well. There's more. Um, yes. Wow. And there's some interesting things. A lot of them is just stuff they they could have cut out, and a lot of it's just like stuff where the the main characters are just kind of riffing which is the best yeah, stuff in the movie obviously, yeah. for pacing reasons you want to cut that there is one scene that i want to talk about real quick which it baffles me to this day why they cut it out so uh, we talked about the character of the sphinx who when our main three uh, heroes are so that's the blue raja who we should say um is hank Azaria speaking in a british accent and his power is he throws cutlery real well. Whilst wearing uh, sort of traditional Indian garb. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's pointed out repeatedly throughout the movie that it's a baffling choice on <laughs> Cause it. Also so, because uh, it's not blue. <laughs> that's that's the main gag. <laughs> um, and obviously William H. Macy's the shoveler, who's just a guy who hits people with a shovel. Um, and uh, Ben Stiller's Mr. Furious, whose power allegedly is that he gains super strength from being incredibly angry. Um, as he's put at the end of the movie, his power comes from his boundless rage. <laughs> um, yeah, so those three are looking to recruit new heroes, and um, the Blue Raja suggests the Sphinx, whose only known power seems to be being, quote-unquote, terribly mysterious, and possibly being able to cut guns in half with his mind. <laughs> um, now, so there's a deleted scene that I think they should have left in the movie, which kind of pre-establishes the Sphinx, mm-hmm. Because if you remember, in the film, he just kind of walks out of an alleyway at one point after cutting the disco boy's guns in half. Um, but there is a deleted scene where they go to this taco place run by uh, Louise Guzman, who was apparently in this movie, because every fucker was in this movie. Yeah. Um, and like, there's kind of a gag about like that that like, age-old like thing of, 
oh, if you go into the pizza restaurant or the taco restaurant and you order something like the certain combination, it's like the secret key to like accessing the Sphinx. And like, they're ba- basically, it's just a gag where they list off all these different combinations, none of which are correct. And like, they just end up like sitting there with this massive pile of tacos and stuff. And they're just like, oh, he's not coming. We're not going to see him. Oh, let's just go. And then they go. And then you see where Studi, like, as the janitor, or like, as the bloke is like cleaning tables. And you see like a brief shot where he has like the Sphinx's logo tattooed on his wrist. And it's like, it kind of just sets up the Sphinx as like being there. Right, okay. And also kind of sets up the fact that like, although he is terribly mysterious, he's also just kind of some schmuck, which I think would have added some context yeah, to agree, that character. Not that I think the film desperately needs Yeah, I agree, because they mentioned the Sphinx early in the film, he's alluded to, and then he just yeah. rocks up. There's nothing yeah. really between those two scenes that builds him up. And yeah, I think that would have been better put in the movie, but also you'd have to cut something else out to make room for that. <laughs> yeah, because it is a slightly too long scene, I think, is the reason they cut yeah. it. Yeah, and I'm, I've not seen the scene, but like, is the, the gag of them repeatedly ordering weird combinations of food actually funny? Kind of. But again, it's that thing of like, I can see why they cut it, because it is just kind of like, there's a lot of those kind of gags in the movie of like, the characters just having pointless conversations that go on forever. Like, that's the whole bit, like, when they kill Captain Amazing, that's the thing, right? He's like, because he's hooked up to the psycho fraculator, this ridiculous yeah. sci-fi contraption. And he's trying to t- tell them how to depower it so they can get them off. And obviously he gives them the, like, okay, you need to pull the switch down. They need to pull the switch up. And, you know, that's, and obviously the, the whole gag is they, the, the bowler, Janine Groffler's character, ends up being like, wait, hang on, do, do I need to flip it twice or am I flipping it once the first time? And, and like, it just goes on forever. <laughs> like, there's a lot of those kind of gags, so I can see why they cut that yeah. out. No, uh, but, yeah. Um, um, I think, yeah, your stuff that you were saying about, like, how um, when it's just the characters just kind of riffing together, that is the best of the movie. I mean, when you've got a cast that's like, you know, yeah. Ben Stiller, William H. Macy, Hank Azaria, like, you just want to see those three people just fucking about, really. And that is the real strength of the film. Just an insane cast, like... I mean, the cast goes on and on because like, Eddie Izzard is like the leader of the Disco Boys, Casanova Frankenstein's henchman. You've got Tom Waits. But Jeffrey Rush is in yeah. this movie as Casanova Frankenstein. Why is Jeffrey Rush in this movie? <laughs> like, he's clearly having a ball, don't get me wrong. But... He is. He is playing it to the back row and just serving up ham sandwiches with <laughs> ruthless efficiency. I'm a big fan of the Disco Boys as well because I just love how every time they're on screen they are accompanied by disco music. Like, they make sure to make that happen every single time and I'm here for it. One of my resounding images of Eddie Azard as a performer, and we should say um, uh, I'm going to use Eddie and he, him pronouns. Uh, Eddie Azard is okay with us doing that. He he has said this publicly. Yes. Um, Not that I disrespect his gender identity, just like... It's hard for me to switch to, to the other thing because I've known Eddie's work for a long time. And since, also, since. Eddie Azard is playing a male character in this movie. So. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but anyway, one of my resounding images of Eddie Azard is him in this movie, like dancing in the disco room to uh, Night Fever by the Bee Gees, and then delivering the line Disco is not dead, disco is life. <laughs> That's great. I mean, I feel like we should definitely um, talk more about uh, Spleen. Because obviously this is the poor Ruby schedule. There's a lot to get into with this movie. Though. There's there's a surprising amount of movie. I was just expecting I this dumb little superhero movie, but yeah, there's there's a lot more going on. Like um, the bowler is just a weird character. She has her dad's skull inside uh, a bowling ball. Janine's Garofalo's character, yeah, who can telekinetically control a a clear bowling ball that has her father's skull in it, because her father is Carmine the bowler, 
who was killed by Eddie Izzard. Which does lead to, I think I've referenced this on the pod, one of my favourite lines of dialogue of all time, where uh, Ginny Gravelo guys, uh, uh, he fell down an elevator shaft onto some bullets. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great line. Uh, which, is then, which is then accompanied by, uh, yes, I think, uh, I suspected some foul play. As did I. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like the thing about this movie is like there is there is it is a little overlong, it is a little overstuffed. Um but the script is so funny. Yeah. The dialogues and like some of it's obviously ad libs, like these guys are riffing the whole time. Like but I, I genuinely think the characters are so funny, the script is so funny, like the concepts of these characters, like Mr. Furious, who supposedly can lift a city bus with his, you know, his berserker rage. But we never see any evidence. Yeah, of that like he's just woefully inept. Uh, the yeah, invisible boy yeah. who's like, I can only turn invisible when no one's looking at me, and it's used precisely one time in the film. <laughs> never loses it again. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I also think like, that we will get into the spleen more in a minute. But I kind of like this is the one time we're going to talk about this movie, so I want to kind of talk a little bit about why I love it so much. It's like I think as well one thing that makes this a bit of a cult favorite amongst a certain kind of person is like. This is a film that is doing a spoof of superheroes, but isn't really cynical about the idea of superheroes. Yeah, know? I would agree. Like, I I think what it does is it kind of it it understands that the people who love superheroes are geeks. Because yeah. this movie is basically the geeks versus the jocks, right? Yeah. And our main characters are like the geek superheroes. Like they they all have this image of superheroes that they want to be like. And like this is best personified by Hank Azaria as um the blue raja right like his thing is incomprehensible to anyone else (laughs) he's just like obsessed he's almost like a weeb yeah like he's obsessed with this other culture and you know to the point where he affects the british accent and all the rest of it but a scene that i love in this movie that genuinely like speaks to my soul i'm saying that about mystery man (laughs) is at the end of the film where you know when they're about to go to their final battle with casanova frankenstein and you see, like, Jeff's mum comes in. And, like, he's been kind of shutting his mum out the whole time because he lives in his mum's basement. Ha ha, he's a nerd, right? Uh, and she's, like, trying to... F- you see that she's trying to figure out what his deal is. Like, she smells his incense. And she's like, are you into marijuana? <laughs> like, you know, there's, there's, like, that running thing. When he finally reveals to her, like, I'm a superhero and the Blue Raja, I'm the master of silverware. And she gives him the, the special silverware that was saved for his wedding. <laughs> Uh, which obviously that's a gag as well because she's like, oh, looks like it's going to be a long way off. <laughs> um, but like, I like that that scene is played mostly sincere. Like it's just played as like he comes out yeah, of his mother almost as this hero. That's what I was going to say. It's a coming out scene, isn't it? It's very yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's quite touching in a way. And uh, yeah. yeah, I like that a lot. I personally, I, I love the fact. That, I love the fact that his mum goes do the accent. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I personally like she loves I love that the, the, sorry I do just love that scene because it's like the whole running gag of like no one gets his thing like no one gets why he's not blue no one gets why he's British why he can't throw a knife but as soon as he comes out to his mum she's the only one in the film who just completely gets his thing like as soon as he's like oh your boy's a limey fork like a mother she's like so on board with it it's so funny but it's so sweet as well at the same time yeah it's, very, it's a very very wholesome scene I really like it I like the shoveler yeah. personally um, yes. William H Macy's character, it's William H Macy, whose wife yeah. is just so done with his shit, <laughs> she's just on the brink of divorcing him, and he just will not give up <laughs> on his dream of being a superhero because he was given one talent. In well, him. that's one of the best scenes, right? Is the superhero tryouts in his back garden. <laughs> yeah. 
And she's like, if anyone throws up in my pool, we're getting divorced. Like, I love her. She's great. Like, I love. To, I also love the line that precedes that scene where uh, Invisible Boy's like, oh, I know tons of superheroes. Um, you know, if you have tryouts, they'll all come. Throw in a few kegs and some food and they'll all turn up. The mooch factor's pretty big with the scrap. <laughs> He's like, if you've got a pool as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, that's an amazing... There's some great cameos in that yeah. as well. The... I mean, you got Doug Jones in there as pencil head. You do, you do. That's one of the like that, that that scene is filled with lines that live in my head rent free because I've seen this movie so many times as a child. Like the, I am pencil head and I am son of pencil head. <laughs> <laughs> slays me every time. You've got Dane Cook um, who shows up in this as well. Yes, the only time I've ever found Dane yeah, Cook his, is uh, as the waffle as the waffle. The waffle. He's a waffle iron. It's, for me, it's the bit where he just shoves the waffle iron into his own face. <laughs> I thought it was really funny. <laughs> Another line that lives in my head rent free that I probably think of daily is um, I'm the waffler, golden crispy, bad guys of history. Yow! <laughs> that scene is great. Yeah, like, I really, really enjoyed that. The, the PMS Avenger, I only work four days a week. That was the <laughs> That was the bit that just made me go, Oh yes, this film was made in nineteen ninety-nine, <laughs> wasn't it? <laughs> I think the bit that sells that joke for me, like it is a bit of a cringe joke, but I love the fact that after she says that, she goes, you got a problem with that? And they're all like, no, no, no. no, no. <laughs> we'll call you, we'll call you. <laughs> yes, uh, very silly, very silly stuff. But yeah, but again, you talk about like the shovelers, uh, the whole running joke about like his wife. I mean, she gets some good lines, like you shovel, <laughs> you shovel better than any man I've ever seen. That does not make you a superhero. <laughs> Which is just amazing as well. It's just, but, yeah, um, he wears his... I do like as well, like, again, there's some sincerity to this movie, like, where he says, like, I'm going to, me and the team are going to go and fight Casanova Frankenstein, and she's like, I won't be here when you get back. And he goes, you know, well, that's just a risk I'm going to have to take, because if I don't, there might not be a home to come back to. And I like that they actually have enough time, they don't overdo it, but they have enough time to play, like, you see her realising, like, oh no, this is, like, the real shit. This is not just, like, my husband's weird thing. Yeah. He's going to go and do the thing. And then obviously when you see them on the news after saving the day, like it cuts to her, you know, and she's she gets it for the yeah. first time. Well, yeah, I think they said like uh, that. Shout, shout out to one gag that I love in this movie, a physical gags where the, the shoveler is fighting off a henchman with his shovel, loses the shovel, the henchman yeah. swings a pipe at him and he blocks it with a little yeah, trowel. I, I love that part too. I thought that was that was great. Um yeah, I think like yeah. By the end of this movie, every one of the main characters is just embraced for being a weirdo. Like you know, they they just get embraced yeah. for their eccentricities, and I think that's yeah, that's very very wholesome ending to it, and very in line with like yeah, the sort of stuff that Paul Rubens likes to do. So, mm. I mean, Spleen does Spleen get some kind of resolution? No, really. I watched this like an hour. <laughs> the spleen ago. is just the spleen. <laughs> the spleen is just the spleen. He just really. just farts his way yes. through life. The end of his arc is that he gets shot in the ass at the end of the film, but his farts still work. <laughs> you can't keep a player down. <laughs> you cannot. You simply cannot. And speaking of that, I love the running gag of him cracking onto the bowler. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit in this that made me creaks. I mean, every time they cut back to Paul Rubens, his face is doing something amazing. But there's a bit where, where he first meets the bowler and goes, you're very attractive. And his face is so funny. He just funny looks in grotesque show. in this movie. <laughs> like, yeah, because he's like covered in warts and he's got a like, fucking long, greasy hair. It's so gross. And the thing is, like, he sells the fart gags. Oh, well. yeah, 100%. Like, like, that could easily be an obnoxious character. And it is an obnoxious character, but because it's played 
to perfection by Paul Rubens. Like, yeah, he's definitely one of the like, highlights of this movie. I think Hank Azaria is wonderful in it as well. Like, but he's great in everything. Yeah, he's that's great. the thing. Like, he's. I mean, I I genuinely like all the performances yeah. in this film. Like, I, yeah, Ben Stiller. Uh, I mean, you know, Ben is good. He's doing his Ben. He's doing yeah, his best. I think he's outshone by Rubens and Azaria and stuff. Like, I think he's. But you know, this was a couple of years before. Ben Stiller made the greatest movie ever made, which is, of course, Zoolander. Um, so he wasn't quite there yet, in my opinion. Um, but no, I liked this movie what a lot. Surprise you, what did it surprise you to learn, Mark, that um, Janine Garofalo in this movie as the bowler, um, tiny Aiden, small 1999 Aiden, was madly in love with her? Would that surprise you to learn? No, not shocked at all. She is a, a busty lady with her father's <laughs> skeleton that she carries around in a bag. Like, Why was that not your dream? Would, would you just... Dis- would you describe that as the most on-brand thing I've said? All oh, 100%. <laughs> I mean, she does get some incredible lines in this film. And that's the other thing. Like, that visual is so funny as well. The, the bowling ball with the skull in it that she talks to as well. <laughs> and it's never entirely clear of, like, it's actually talking back to her. The special it. effects for said bowling ball zipping around, however... Have aged, have aged a little bit, yes. <laughs> no. Well, they're saying that, like... At the time, it looked fine. They must that is definitely an example yeah, of I mean, like th- what was this movie having budget? the advantage of having seen it at the time. I, I can say like the budget was huge. Yeah, actually. sixty-eight million according to Wikipedia. That's why it's considered such a flop because it just didn't it didn't do the business that it should have done. Really, I think it like this movie cost this movie cost more to make than the Matrix. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. You would not think that. No. Because I mean, the Matrix had the benefit of like not having too many massive stars. True. I mean, I think at, at the time, yeah. at the time, you know, because I think like if I'm going to sort of get into any of my other criticisms of this movie, um, even though I did really enjoy it, um, the performances do make up for this aspect. But I think like on a technical level, this movie's not quite there. Like, there's some weird direction yes. and some fairly awful camera work in places. I think the thing is with that. So this is directed by a guy called Kinka Usher, who mostly known for directing commercials. In fact, that's what he does to this day. Um, this is the only feature film he's ever made, and I think the fact it was kind of largely perceived as a flop mm-hmm. probably put the nail in the coffin for him doing anything on a big scale again. What I will say is, I think this is an example of his style is... He's got a style that he's trying to put across... And it's not quite there yet. Because there's definitely some directorial stuff where I'm like, okay, I can see what you're going with. Like, you're trying to give it this kind of heightened, kind of grotesque, cartoony look. So, so there's like a lot of fisheye lenses and a lot of like wide angle close ups on people's faces and people's grotesque feet in the, that one scene with Jeffrey Rush. Yep. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of that going on and there's a lot of like the camera kind of whizzing around and stuff. And. It's definitely very 90s, I'll say that. Yeah. We were talking about the, the, the Matilda film earlier, and that's a film that has a very similar style to this. And worth um, pointing out... Less uh, frenetic. Yeah, worth pointing out as well, the reason Matilda came up in the conversation is because Paul Rubens is also in that. Um, yeah, I'd forget very, very about briefly. that. He has a small role in, a small role in Matilda. But I think not only is um, the style of this movie very 90s, but obviously when you consider this was uh, lifted from a Dark Horse comic, look at the other movies yeah. of the 90s that came out that were lifted yeah. from Dark Horse comics. Um, again, I am just looking at Wikipedia here, but as soon as I saw this, it just all made sense. Um, in that you've also got Tank Girl. <laughs> not a great movie. <laughs> no. uh, Barb Wire. 
Not a great movie. Cracking film. <laughs> and nothing wrong with Marvel. And how could we possibly forget Virus? What is Jamie virus? Lee Curtis, Donald Sutherland. Uh, oh, yeah. Christ. Yes. Yeah. So when are we talking yeah, about bad. the Dark Horse movies? Asian and Matt versus the Dark Horse cinematic universe. Well, that would also include Hellboy, though. So it would. Obviously, stuff. 30 Days of Night is also one uh, that is lifted from a... That's, that's one of my mum's favourite films. I, I like that movie. That? I think it's a fun movie. I like that movie, yeah. too. But she loves that movie. It's a good little time. Um, but yeah, what are we saying about this? So, um, Mystery Men. Oh, one thing to point out. We didn't really talk about Tom Waits, but he is in this he, movie. For, for some um, reason, he is in this movie. And he's great in this film. He is. <laughs> playing uh, Dr. Heller, who kits the team out with some... Uh, non-lethal yeah. weaponry. <laughs> Which includes a tornado uh, in a can. <laughs> tornado in a can. Uh, there's the blame thrower, which I yes. like, which just turns your enemies against each other. <laughs> um, yeah, and lots of other uh, odds and sods. We should also talk about some of the other celebrity cameos in this film. Uh, you do have, um, speaking of people who've disgraced themselves, CeeLo Green. Yes. Uh, and the rest and the rest of the goody mob as the not-so-goody mob in this movie. <laughs> um, which is fun. <laughs> Uh, we also have film director Michael Bay. Um, I mean, Abdul's going to listen to this, so he, and this is like his the thing he always references when we talk about mystery men is Michael Bay popping up and going, "Dude, can we bring the brewskis?" <laughs> um, he's the leader of the Frat Boys, another one of Casanova Frankenstein's little gangs. Um, but that whole scene's like a direct lift from the Warriors as well, when he's got all the themed yeah, yeah. gangs. I mean, he even says, "Can you dig it?" Right? Yeah, so, it's it's very obviously a, an homage to that. Yeah. What are we thinking of Jeffrey Rush in this movie? I oh, mean, he he's challenging Paul Rubens for scenery chewing. For I the think. ham off. Yeah. For the ham to ham combo. Because <laughs> he is like hamming it from scene one as well. There's no build up. He's straight in. He's there. just going for it. Like, he, it, like you say, there's a bit where like he has his feet out, and even like his toenails are painted gold and stuff. Like they really just go for that look on that character. Uh, just Casanova Frankenstein. Just great villain. Love him. Fantastic now. <laughs> <laughs> that implies that he's a mad scientist who just fucks a lot. <laughs> you get the you get the vibe. He fucks like Jeffrey Rush fucks up this movie. <laughs> what do we think of Greg Kinnear as Captain Amazing in this movie? <laughs> uh, the right level of smarmy, I think, and I like the fact that his character <laughs> is an amalgamation of both Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne. I like that they kind of just... Bruce Wayne, yeah, because he's bi- billionaire Lance Hunt. Yeah, who is his... Which again, that's that's one scene that people always reference from this movie is when the the main three are in the diner discussing. Uh, Lance Hunt is Captain Amazing. Lance Hunt wears glasses. Captain Amazing doesn't wear glasses. He takes him off when he transforms. It doesn't make any sense. He won't be able to see. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no. I'm... That's, I mean, that's the thing that's kind of interesting about this movie is like it kind of came out of the wrong time. I yeah. Think. Like because it kind of came out of the tail end of one run of superhero movies, which had already devolved into self parody with like Batman. Because this movie more than anything resembles the Joel Schumacher Batman. Oh, movies. for sure. Yeah. And even like there's even this, this suiting up sequence towards the end is a direct lift from Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin, yeah. right? Um, less erotic than Joel Schumacher picture. I'm not sure about that. But... <laughs> <laughs> you consider this film to be erotic? Uh, I consider this film to be many things, and erotic is definitely one of them. <laughs> You're telling me you wouldn't slip kind of Casanova a... Frankenstein one? I mean, he's not really he's not really my guy, Casanova Frankenstein. 
to, to be honest, if I was going to, Eddie Izzard in this movie has something about him. Because <laughs> he's just he's Tony P, the leader of the Disco Boys. He's strutting his funky that stuff. That is very true. Him, you know? Just swinging um, dogs. Like, <laughs> you're at every time he, he and his Disco Boys appear, they're accompanied by another disco hit. <laughs> Firing up on the soundtrack. Maybe that's where most of the budget. Speaking went. of, <laughs> speaking of the soundtrack, we have to uh, address the elephant. I was hoping we could not. Uh, All Star Smash Mouth. Yeah, is used twice in this movie. It was released as a tie-in sponsorship to this. That's movie. even worse. I do you know what this is in the Rubin now. <laughs> McG directed the music video, and there are clips from Mystery Men in the music video. If this stands out to me, this that song was used in a couple of movies around this time as well, was it? Because obviously, most famously, Digimon, Digimon the movie, yes. Uh, most famously, Shrek, obviously, Mystery and Man. oh Shrek, yeah, Shrek. Uh, a movie that I have a soft spot for. It's also used in Rat Race, yes, because Smash Mouth appear as themselves at the end of the movie and perform the song. Yeah, that's weird. Which is wild, really. Um, Look, Smash Mouth are all about getting that money. They, they are. It's a shame that they didn't keep that money. They're not really around anymore, are they? But that kind of speaks to this movie's status as an underdog film, though, I think, because, like, this movie is it had a tie-in music video for Smash Mouth's All-Star, and yet if you say All-Star to somebody, what's the film they're going to associate Shrek, with? Shrek, obviously. Shrek the, Shrek the motion picture. Yeah. That's what I think of the Shrek movie as being Shrek. But I think that's just meme picture. culture as well, isn't it? Like that Sma- Smash Mouth yeah. is such a meme now. Like it's it's Smash Mouth and All Star are just not in any way associated with Mystery Men anymore. I was shocked that it appeared in this movie twice, twice, and it hurt both times during the training montage and over the end. Legit, I, I let out an audible sigh. As- when this... As they walk away from the rubble of Casanova Frankenstein's mansion, you hear dween, 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 dween. Uh yeah, it goes in the Rubin for that reason only, I'm afraid. No, come on, you can't put a film in the Rubin for having all star in it. I can and I will Aiden. That's the thing. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I... And then you have to put Shrek in the Rubin. <laughs> um, it's got it's got Smash Mouth in it, so therefore it must go in the Rubin. Um by the way, when we do the William Friedkin memorial episode, it's going to be Friedwin or Friedkin. <laughs> so get used to that. <laughs> kind of fucked up to put a film in the bin on a memorial episode. Be like, yeah, we are, you know, we're shouting you out, but also that film was trash. <laughs> so, do you have much else to say about Mystery Man? I mean, I could talk about Mystery Man till the cows. I know you but could. I think we've... And I think the cows are home now, so. I will. I'll talk to them. About <laughs> um, no, I think all I'll say about it is like this is a movie that has a lot of uh, a special place in my heart. I feel like we've maybe not done it justice, but like we've talked about it. We were always going to talk about it at some point. Um, and you know, I will happily put this down as one of my favorite movies. Like, it's not perfect. But let me tell you something. If at any point someone's like, do you want to watch Mystery Man? The answer is yes. I did feel like uh, I got a glimpse into you as a person by finally seeing this movie. Because I know you've loved this one for many years and I've just never, ever seen it. And uh, a lot a lot made sense after seeing this. <laughs> a lot of things you've written. Yeah, this is... A lot of things that you've said to <laughs> me. <laughs> they all made sense. Yeah, I mean, 
I've, I was saying to my mum earlier today, I was saying, uh, you know, we're talking about mystery men. She's like, oh, you guys used to watch that all the time. And I was saying to her, like, yeah, it's going to be weird because Mark's never seen it. And he's now going to understand, like, half the jokes I've made to him in over 10 years of friendship are just references to mystery men. <laughs> like, there's so many lines of this where I'm like, I think I've just dropped that into casual conversation more often than I, I would like to admit. Uh, but but that's, what, that's the thing that I love about this movie is, like, Whenever I've watched it as an adult, it does always hold up as like just being really funny. Like even in spite of some of the flaws we've pointed out, um, you know, it's a slightly baggy film. I would say yeah. it's not as tight as it could be, but um, I think you know it makes up for that. It makes up for the lulls by the funny scenes are so funny and so consistently funny, and it has a cast of great actors just being really at, the, at a time when they were kind of at the height of their yeah. powers as well. I mean, you look at. I mean, you talk about Paul Rubens. Like, if you just took all the clips of Paul Rubens in this movie, they're fucking hilarious. Yeah, he's and the essential joke of his character is just he's gross and he farts all the time. It's, yeah, it's really a testament to the fact that like he can stand head to head with so many like sort of comedy heavyweights and play a character whose whole shtick is farting, and because he's the broadest yeah, character and in the outdo movie. them. I think like. Mm. yeah it's kind of amazing and even though i'd never seen this movie before and i definitely don't have that attachment to it that you do and i feel like if i had seen this in my childhood i would probably have the same sort of uh affection for it that yeah. you do um i still really enjoyed it it is a bit flabby you could cut some stuff out of it um yeah. would i watch it again yes will i watch it again probably because you're gonna make me <laughs> we're gonna have an annual viewing of mystery man from now until the day and yeah we'll, we'll we'll get some snacks we'll hold hands we'll have a little kiss it'll be lovely i think yeah the thing that i always love about this movie is like it's it's, it's my sense i mean you know i've got a stupid sense of humor. your sense like, of humor is trash kind of yeah. To, yeah and this movie kind of plays to that it's very spoofy it's very like it's kind of clever without being too like without being that joss yeah. whedon kind of clever it's like we get it you've seen a movie yeah. like because the essential gag of this is just like, what if superheroes, but they're a bit shit. And like, that's a pretty good gag for a movie. You know, it works. Uh, and I think yeah, it mines a lot of good material a, out of that. I think comparing it to like the current glut of like Marvel and things like that, I think it really underscores that thing that, you know, like we were saying that Paul Rubens is all about like letting your freak flag fly. Because these are not the the jock heroes that you'd see in the the avengers none of these would make the avengers no no <laughs> one guy throws silverware that's his thing <laughs> one guy shovels well <laughs> shovel well shovel really well so i mean willie we talked about it but willie makes macy one oh fantastic i love him and everything that he's in like oh he always brings the goods so i'm gonna go out on a limb here and say this right? is a a rue win from you yeah, it's a big rude yeah. win from me. Um, it's getting a rude win from me as well. Not as uh, strong and throbbing as yours, but it's, you know... I, but solid. Yeah, it's solid. I, I did really enjoy this. I definitely do not have that sort of deep sense of attachment and affection for it that you do, but I really enjoyed this. I thought it was very funny, and yeah. I would absolutely watch you it. Didn't watch a, you, you didn't religiously watch a VHS of this movie that your uncle taped off of Sky Movies for you? No, but again, <laughs> the more you talk about your love for this movie, the more it just makes sense. It all just fits. <laughs> yeah, it's a very Aiden film. Very much very so, Aiden yeah, film, very much so. Um, one thing we did forget to talk about, although I referenced it earlier, is uh, this movie was allegedly directed by Tim Burton under an alias. Ah, uh, yes, you did mention that. Um, this conspiracy theory was started by none other than Tom Waits, 
uh, I suspect after several whiskies during an interview, um, who claimed that King Karusha does not exist, and it was in fact Tim Burton who was on set directing him for this movie. Um, absolutely no one else has ever backed this theory up, but Tom Waits sticks to it to this day. Why he has claimed that that is the case when a cursory Google will bring up the fact that King Karusha not only exists, but has directed many award-winning commercials in his time. We cannot say. Tom Waits is the law unto himself. I did read... Uh, That's all I'll say to that. Just as one little uh, side note. I did read at one point Danny DeVito was in talks to both direct and star in this. Yes. Which is interesting. Yeah, there's some interesting casting stuff, because... Um, Ben uh, Stiller was originally on up for the role of uh, the Blue Raja, played by Hank Azaria. Mm. But he didn't want to do that role because he felt like he'd played too many nerd roles uh, recently. And so he wanted to play uh, Mr. Furious. But which now kind of is like, I, I don't really know what the Ben Stiller version of that character would be like. It'd be kind of strange. Yeah, no, I, I see what you mean. But um, Hank Azaria is amazing in this movie. So and other amazing in everything. Like, like I, I was, I was yeah. talking to you about how um, a couple of months ago I finally saw The Birdcage for the first time, and he's fantastic in that. That's a great as well. film. Yeah, he's really great good film. in that. But yes, we should end. Uh, so we're both saying Rube went on. Yeah, yeah, so we should end by saying our final words on the late, great, dearly departed Paul Rubens. Yeah, just fantastic character actor, just incredibly charming and magnetic on screen, deeply funny, like literally doesn't have to say any lines of dialogue and can just be hilarious. Yeah, he's got one of the funniest faces in, in cinema history. Yeah, absolutely. And like we've said, you know, he was a big um, advocate of you know, really letting your freak flag fly and... Sometimes too much. Yeah, you know... He took it too far. Yeah, there, there are laws around <laughs> flying flags, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, come on, don't you run it up the flagpole when you get home, Paul. Don't you know? That's crazy. That we as a society were like, you go to a porno theater, you watch the movie, you don't touch yourself, you just take it in, and then when you get home, then you can have a little five knuckle shuffle. I just think you know, like, what, what what kind of world is that? Is a uh... It was a very unfortunate little pervert. Like, that's my yeah. That's my most yeah. Life. And like we should we should say all we we've been having a little fun with the scandalous life of Paul Rubens, but I, I stand by the serious stuff that we said at the start. Like I think he was done dirty. I think he was railroaded. Yeah. And I hope that his career is looked back on with fondness. Uh, well, I think it already is. Like all, all the um, tributes that have been pouring in from pretty much everyone who's ever even been in the presence of Paul Rubens has been, like, touching to see. Yeah. I think, as well, I, I would say, um, to speak of the character of the man, uh, I saw Conan O'Brien talking about um, another Simpsons alumni, talking about Paul Rubens and saying they've been, they've been friends for years. And apparently, um, anyone who was good friends with Paul Rubens, uh, first of all, he never forgot a birthday. And what he would do is he would basically send you incomprehensible birthday memes throughout the day on your birthday. <laughs> And there's something about that that I just find so sweet and endearing. <laughs> and also just like, that is absolutely what Pee Wee Herman would do. <laughs> Paul Rubens was a, a great man. He really was. And just a, a real just gem in anything that he was ever in. And I, I, I know yeah. obviously we've and talked you know, all over these movies uh, whilst we did this, but I think the appreciation that we have for him is very evident. And 
if you haven't seen any of these movies that we've talked about today, go and watch them just for him. There's a reason we chose these films. Also, watch the movie Blow with Johnny Depp, because he plays a drug dealer in that, and it's a genuinely fantastic performance. And also watch Matilda, because that's a good movie. And he is in that. And watch anything that he does an animated voice for. Yeah. And then go watch that new Pee Wee movie that's apparently a secret gay rom-com. Yeah, we should, we watch, should that. watch that. We should watch that for the part. We should have watched it. We should have. Not fucking, not fucking mystery. No, Who cares? Yeah. Why did we choose that? <laughs> <laughs> Gives a shit about Buffy the Vampire Slayer and mystery, man. What kind of podcast is this? <laughs> well. Uh, so yeah, so Paul Rubens, RIP. Rest in power, my dude. Yeah, I hope that you're reunited with Phil Hartman in heaven and that they have less uh, restrictive rules about where you can and can't master. And I hope when Andy Dick eventually goes, you guys are waiting for him. <laughs> He's not going to heaven. <laughs> if there's one man who's not going to heaven, it's fucking Andy Dick. He, among all men, will never know the bliss of heaven. <laughs> I mean, he's genuinely a dodgy. Oh, one, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Awful, man. Awful, awful, man. So glad that we ended this uh, tribute to the late Paul Rubens on just dissing Andy <laughs> Dick. <laughs> it's what he would have wanted, I think. Well, you know, he was good friends with Phil he Hartman. Was so he probably had no kind words to say about Mr. Dick. And neither do we. No. Unless it's Paul Rubens' dick, which should have been allowed to play with itself. Okay, I was trying to get one more master. Yeah, you, you really strained was, for that one, didn't wasn't you? Happening. It wasn't happening. Yeah, I really strained for it. It's like Paul Rubens in the backseat of a fucking multiplex. <laughs> He's back, baby. <laughs> the, the king is back. <laughs> well, on that bombshell, I've been Mark. I've been Aiden. We're both waiting trepidatiously to see who's going to launch into a Pee Wee Herman impression. I got nothing. No, I got nothing. And I'm the Spoon! (laughs) (laughs) One thing before we roll credits. The Spleen's voice, yeah. John Leguizamo watched this film before doing Ice Age, yeah? We can all agree on that. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty. The Spleen's voice in this movie is just Sid the Sloth. It is, yeah. I think it is. No hay on Lake was armor. No, but it's it's pretty much, yeah. I think it's there. Anyway, let's end the podcast. You're gonna wish you died.